This is VOCM Open Line. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. The biggest conversation in Newfoundland and Labrador starts now. Here's VOCM Open Line host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning in to the show. It's Tuesday, February the 20th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. For now, Greg Smith is sitting in the producer's chair. David Williams apparently stuck behind one of the many accidents that have happened already this morning here in the metro region, so we'll see David Williams now in a bit as well. So, plenty of questions. Where were we yesterday? And just for clarification, and to be honest with you, I forgot we had a pending holiday uh, yesterday, Monday, until Greg told me after the show on Friday. But anyway, so now we are on the company's stat holiday schedule, which includes family day which was yesterday so it was actually a stat holiday for us which is why you heard a different format on the radio when you tuned in this uh, yesterday morning so that's the reason why we were away and as mentioned so man there's been oh some old dump of snow in the last week or so maybe some 70 plus centimeters have dropped in my driveway so there's been lots of snow clearing required and of course yesterday was much more of a west coast type of snowfall light and fluffy but with the wind that's a whiteout in the making so there you go. Plenty of complaints coming in about snow clearing, whether it be people having to drive on the highways or even just around town. Now, I suppose they're doing their level best to keep up with it, but some of the conditions have been really quite poor. So especially with the sidewalk removal uh, that's ongoing, apparently the equipment's having a hard time keeping up with it. So says the city of St. John's. But even in places where there sometimes would indeed be a plowed sidewalk and they're not available today, I saw a couple of wicked close calls with motorists and pedestrians just yesterday in the city. So if there's nowhere for them to walk, I guess we just got to do our best to share. Uh, anyway, up in Labrador, it looks like Kane's Quest is a go. Remember last year, there was a couple of pauses before the endurance snowmobile race was eventually canceled as one team, I believe from Finland, went through the ice in some open water. So set to begin on the 3rd of March. They say they've gone out to all their stakeholders, you know, community leaders, search and rescue teams. And of course, the businesses are celebrating the fact that teams will, be, will indeed be coming to Labrador from all over the world. But there are some folks in the area that are still bringing forward some concerns regarding the weather conditions and the ice conditions. The organizers say some 96% of the route is absolutely doable, and they don't foresee any issues or complications this year, but it's a go. And the Growlers had their six-point game uh, streak Point streak snapped yesterday down in Reading against the Royals with a 2-1 loss, I believe was the final score. And at Team Stacey Curtis up at the Scotties in Calgary, Alberta. Uh, I mean, it's an incredibly stout field. I think eight of the top 12 teams in the country are there, and she's in Pool A, which is absolutely stacked. Have come up short so far. They're 0-3, but they get PEI today. Maybe a chance to get in the wind column. So, of course, you don't need me to tell you, we're right in the throes of winter. February is when it begins to drag on. But sun rose before 7 a.m. this morning. The spring training is ongoing for Major League Baseball, giving us all some encouragement. Oh, there's Dave Williams. Good morning, Dave. Dave has made his way into the production studio. So, yeah. Anyway, while all that happens, we're still having to heat our homes. Here's some, I mean... The number of people that are sending me snapshots or screenshots of their power bill and the whopping big totals associated with the bills is pretty much out of control. So the same questions will be asked. 
you know, when we know Newfoundland Power has a couple of rate ha- applications, rate hike applications in front of the PUB, one for a 1.5% increase this year, 5.5% increase next year. And of course, the PUB, before the process even started, warned us that our power bills are likely to increase by even more than what NF Power is looking for. And of course, inside that world is a rate of return question. So from 8.5% to 9.85%, which is absolutely significant. The question being posed is when we know that like, you go to the grocery store, and unless you're buying something that's prepared, like a made sandwich or something by the grocery store deli workers, we're not paying tax on it. I think there's a legitimate conversation to be had about whether or not we should be paying tax on home heating fuels or oils or however, whatever source you use for heat in your home. It's a necessity of life. I mean, we live in a northern climate. Most of the country's got the heat cranked. When the wind chill is like minus 15 or something today, of course, people making some of those difficult choices, but trying to stay warm is an obvious one. So I have realized that government is still struggling here provincially and borrowing money annually to keep up with the budget expenses. But it really feels like whether it be a means-tested issue or something or other, I don't know, but the folks that are struggling mightily to simply try to heat their homes in the throes of winter is amazing. So you want to take it on, we can do it. On top of that, we know that it's been deemed unfair across the country, for instance in Alberta, where the predominant source of heat for your home is natural gas, is that the carbon tax carve-out for home heating fuels, which they say is a nationwide issue, what predominantly impacts Atlantic Canada and a big impact in this province. As a result, people who are getting their carbon tax rebate are going to get less. So they've continually tried to rebrand this thing from a carbon tax rebate to a climate action something or other, now to a a Canada carbon rebate. Anyway, so you're going to get less this year. Family of four can expect to get $298 quarterly. That's down from $328 in 2023. A single adult will get a benefit of $149 quarterly compared to $164 last year. And that's, of course, all based on the carve-out. The rural supplement has been doubled to 20% of the base amount. And the next payment, uh, the quarterly payment, is on the 15th of April. I read a news story this morning that said April 1st, but it's on the 15th of the month, April, July, October, and in January. So expect less on that front. And interestingly, based on documents uh, got by Radio Canada, and I seem to be in the minority really curious about what's happening with the negotiations between this province, Quebec, Newfoundland and Labrador Hydro, and Hydro-Quebec regarding 2041. So apparently there's documents out there that show there's been at least five out-of-province meetings so far, which would include, of course, the first couple of preliminary type of discussions. But when you, it's certainly really couched differently here than it is in Quebec. So I don't expect the province to put all its cards on the table during the middle of these negotiations. But there still needs to be some understanding of, not, number one, what exactly 2041 means. And the willingness, so says Premier Legault of Quebec, his willingness to reopen the contract if there's an expansion of generation on the river. That can only mean one thing, because you can't generate any more power than is already going to be generated at Muskrat Falls when it's actually working in full at 824 megawatts, which will never e- actually produce and make its way either to the Maritime Link and or to Soldier's Pond. 
So they've been in Quebec. They've been to Nova Scotia. They talk about some of the restaurants they've visited, what have you. So there's nine negotiators from this province, seven from Quebec. And, you know, one of the quotes, in an effort for the teams to get to know each other better, thereby enhancing each team's ability to have the most constructive discussions possible. Show me the money. So when Legault talks about expansion on the river, it can only mean Gull Island, right? So does that mean in full that unless there's some pursuing that massive uh, opportunity at 2,225 megawatts at Gull Island, that unless that is part of this, then there will be no reopening of the contract? Because what's happened since 1969 to today is the crux of the matter. You know, we're coming towards the end of the contract in 2041, which does not mean that we take over uh, the Upper Churchill in full. The equity positions remain the same. It'll just be a renegotiation on price per kilowatt. But does that mean what Legault says? Unless we're pursuing Gull, which people in this province will be rightfully hesitant or resistant to another, another mega project because unless it's done entirely different than how we've approached the Muskrat project, then people understandably will be saying, wait now, what are we talking about? So the negotiations are on. I don't know if there's any real firm update coming, but remember, the province has struck its own committee simply to look at the implications of 41. And they haven't even told us what th- those discussions or considerations or evaluations look like. I don't expect contract updates or these negotiation updates, but it sure be nice for the general public to be able to know exactly what 41 means so that we can collectively give a thumbs up or a thumbs down or a sideways thumbs to whatever the outcome of, is of this particular ongoing negotiation. So anyway, you want to talk about it. Let's go. And in the world of paying our bills, no matter who you're going to vote for, we all have to eat and go to the grocery store. This one might seem like a bit of a throwaway, but remember, there's another forecasted huge increase in grocery bills this year. And one of the most frustrating things is that unless we're really told out loud and really clearly indicated on the label and the packaging, we're paying the same amount or more for less product. Maybe I'm again in the minority, but I find it extremely frustrating. So in certain countries in the world, they're actually regulating it, forcing the companies to put very clear indication that the price may indeed be the same or more, but we have reduced the volume. You know, make it clear. Because then, as thrifty consumers, because not everyone remembers exactly how many milliliters was in your Dawn dishwater, dish soap. So tell us, you know. Get in the business, government, and regulate it. It's not being heavy-handed. It's being fair. Because, you know, some of the products look very much the same. But lo and behold, if you go back and look at a past product that you just threw away of the packaging or the container, and now I'm saying, what? I paid the same $8, but now I've got demonstrably less in the product. Maybe that's a small one, but we talk about the big profits, and I mean, I know their margins are not huge, and some of the big profits being made by the grocery giants is not all necessarily on food, whether it be with clothes or in the pharmacy or whatever the case may be, but that concept of just selling me the same thing for the same price or more and I get less of it is infuriating. You want to take it on? We can do it, and let's get this one going. Like many, Saturday mornings, you try to take time, take a deep breath, and read some news. And that includes my subscription to the Globe and Mail. So I'm sitting there, and I'm reading down this story, and I think travel nurses, okay, well, this one's important because we all understand the issue here in Newfoundland and Labrador regarding the amount of money being spent on travel agency nurses. The numbers are absolutely mad. Before the pandemic, about a million dollars annually. 
Last year, between April and August, five months, $35.6 million on nurses from private agencies. In five months, $35.6 million. Okay, so we've asked Minister Tom Osborne very directly about travel nurses, whether or not there should be a date as to when we're going to phase them out. Other provinces are doing exactly that. Mr. Minister Osborne says that could be catastrophic. They might all flee to other jurisdictions. Mm, I don't know. But here's the problem. So there's a company that we've hired, Canadian Health Labs, based in Toronto. They charge nearly double the rate of similar agencies in Canada. So... If there are other nursing agencies out there, and apparently we sole sourced the contract to Canadian Health Labs, leader of the opposition, Tony Wakeham, says that shortly after there was some contact with one of the premier's aides, very close to that date, they had a sole source contract with this company. Hmm, not great. So here's the issue. In some instances, payments were up to $300 an hour for each nurse. General duty nurses can make between $37 and $47 an hour. So when Yvette Coffey and others are commenting, saying it's mind-boggling, and it absolutely is. Here's some other issues. They get paid double for the meal allowances, making over six times the amount of any registered nurse. And in some places, CHL is paying nurses for training, cable bills, and in some instances, furniture? What does furniture have to do with it? So this issue is absolutely huge. You know, whether it be the amount of money, which is astounding, $35.6 million over five months, but the fact that this apparently is a sole source contract, simply 100% not good enough. And so what do you do? Mr. Wickham also goes on with a very common sense suggestion, which we've put forward many times on this program. It's one thing to offer folks leaving, whether it be the nursing school or Mons med school or whatever healthcare discipline, offer them a job on the way out. No, let's offer them a job on the way in. Day one... Upon being accepted and sitting in the classroom for the very first time, we are in touch with you 100% of the entirety of your education, offering you jobs, giving you updates. Because the lore of working as a travel nurse, and I'll be honest with you, if I was a registered nurse or nurse practitioner and I can make double or more, get me cable bill paid, travel, training, I mean, that looks pretty enticing to me. So we've got to get out in front of this issue. But that number is remarkable. Again, for context, pre-pandemic, about a million dollars a year annually. Last year in five months, almost $36 million. So when I read that story, and of course, Linda Swain from VOCM News, she sent me the link as well later in the day. I'd already seen it, but it was making its rounds. Inside of 24 hours, I don't know, 100 people sent me the same link because we've got to get to the bottom of it. But then there's the additional call to bring in the Auditor General. Fair enough. Fair enough. The only issue is, look, the Auditor General, Denise Hanrahan and her team, they do critically important work for the people of the province. The only issue with the AG's work will be, and it's not directed at the Auditor General and or her team, is what happens when we get the reports? Where does the accountability lie? Do things actually change? You know, the AG can only, as an independent arm uh, answering to the House of Assembly, can only provide the work can only give me and you as the taxpaying citizens the details of what's been uncovered. And some things have changed, but not often enough where accountability is a big part of the recommendations and the findings of the Auditor General. So calling them in, fair enough, but is that going to do much? I don't know. What do you think? All right, a couple of quick ones. Stick with healthcare. So apparently, and you remember, out of nowhere, the Premier announced that they were going to tear down St. Clair's and build a replacement facility. And the thought was initially that it could be on the site of the, uh, the Grace Hospital. 
And, <laughs> okay. I find this one to be strange. So there's not huge parcels of land in the north end of the city or the west end of the city. And certainly in other parts of the northeast Avalon, there would be better opportunity for, if we need, the number of hectares consumed by the Cornerbrook Hospital. But the thought for me, as soon as I heard the comments, is, you know, can we not just build up higher versus have to have that big expansive footprint period? I don't know. Maybe that's just oversimplification. But if it's not big enough to accommodate what is envisioned as St. Clair's Hospital, as opposed to five stories or six stories, can it be ten? And consequently, that area, which would be ideal, could accommodate a replacement hospital. But anyway, I'll take it on. We can do it. People still want to put the concept of the... uh, private-public partnership for the divided highway, which, once again, kind of came out of nowhere. And you couple that with uh, Minister Stephen Gibo talking about no more... Look, right off the bat, we should not need to have an Enigma machine or a decoder ring to try to figure out exactly what politicians are saying and what they mean. So when Gibo said, no more infrastructure, uh, no more roadway infrastructure with federal dollars, and then back in, uh, backpedal and saying, well, no more federal investment in large infrastructure, which includes what? Don't know. Does it include this divided highway with which the province and the feds have got a 50-50 cost share in place? So that's one thing. But Regardless of what he actually means, which I don't know, and I guess, once again, like all Canadians, that's frustrating stuff. I don't think the intention is not to maintain roads. It's just for the feds not to expand the road network as it currently stands. Whether or not it's good enough, expansive enough, I'll leave that up to you. But it does not include not keeping up with required ongoing maintenance. Uh, I'll give a traffic note before you end up here. Uh, Anyway, five overdoses last week. There was a two-year stretch there between, I think, 17 and 19. There were nine overdoses, five last week. There are some dangerous drugs on the street. So advocates and the RNC, and last week it was the RCMP up in St. Anthony. So whether it be having an Aloxone kit, which is not an enabling thing, it's a life-saving tool. So with five ODs in a week, if you or people in your social circles are using some of these illicit drugs, obviously it's worthy of a conversation. Now, in the death spiral of addiction, bad choices are going to be made, and maybe some ignorance of what we're seeing on the streets, but five overdoses in a week is extremely concerning. Dropping like flies. And we see it coming. You know, oftentimes things move west to east in this country, and the numbers have been a healthcare crisis in British Columbia for, for years. And now I think we're approaching that particular label in this province as well. And last one. So proposed changes for this year's Newfoundland Labrador Folk Festival. And boy, oh boy, were people emotional when they heard it. I don't know what drives it. And I assume, which, you know, you bring in heavy price tag performers like Amy Lou Harris, which I think is awesome. And now the early bird tickets are all sold, but they've expanded the licensed area for people drinking. You know, it was one of the pretty cool and somewhat magical concepts at the Folk Festival. When it's a nice night in Bannerman Park, it is really something to behold. And at the front, even for the nighttime shows, there would be the children dancing, having fun, right up against the stage. And it was a great spectacle. But now that's changing. And so it'll be 19 plus in the evening. They're building a stage area in the ball field close by for daytime activities for families and their children. But there are some frustrating voices out there. And, you know, I would imagine to keep up with trying to pay for the Emmy Lou Harris's of the world, 
you know, maybe just maybe more money spent at the bear tent in addition to significant hike in price. Although when you compare that kind of headliner to other folk festivals across the country, it's pretty much in line. But if you would like to talk about the proposed changes for this year's folk fest, and that's not the only change, then we're happy to take on the conversation. But, you know, whether it be some people who were initially really, really, really visibly angry uh, versus some other folks offering, you know, maybe, just maybe, we'll hear them out. Whatever angle you want to take at it, but if you want to talk about those proposed changes, we can do it. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show to kick off the week. That means you're in the queue to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. A quick traffic note uh, for those traveling in and around town. Both southbound lanes stopped on Torbay Road just past Mary Queen of Peace by the Glenbrook Lodge. Multiple vehicle accidents. Uh, emergency services are on the scene, so avoid at all costs. Okay, let's keep going. Let's begin this morning on the top of the board in line number one. Sam, you're on the air. Yep. Hi, Sam. Hi, good morning. Penny, how are you today? Doing okay. How about you? Oh, not bad, Tom. Uh, with lots of snow and everything. But, Penny, the reason why I'm, con- I'm on to uh, call in about the recre- fishery, recreation fishery again, it seems like every year uh, it's getting more and more uh, coming up as a hot topic. It was only about two and a half years ago or so I attended a meeting in St. John's that they had an open forum there on the recreation fishery. And at that time, DFO was saying there at the meeting <clears throat> that 1%, if, if it was 1%, is only point zero point one of that percent is taken by the recreation fishery. That's what they were estimating. Now, the biggest problem that I have with the recreation fishery is I fish out of Tickle Cove. That's down in Bonavista Bay. The weather is probably one of the, um, I'd say probably about one of the worst places for trying to get out of uh, the harbor. Uh, whichever way the wind blows, you know, <clears throat> any direction at all, is always rough getting out down there. This is where the change that needs to be made, that I could be there for the whole week and the water perfect go out any time now. But as soon as Friday or Saturday morning comes, it's probably uh, blowing a gale again. There's no way that you're, uh, unless you're going to be foolish enough to take a chance and try to go out like some people do and uh, catch a few fish. But that change needs to be made that not just on weekends, during the week, that you can go out and uh, catch your fish. It can be open every day. And I have no problem with if they want to bring in a log book or something like that, <clears throat> something that you uh, keep track of your fish and, uh, and report it. No. But the weather is the thing. It's the safety part. That's where the big changes has to be made to it. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right, because I don't know how many people would be going out for all the proposed in the petition 90 days and taking however many fish every single day. You can only eat so much yourself, and you can only give away so much, but it's the safety concern that I think is completely legitimate, and people sometimes just make bad decisions. If they feel like, well, my chances are fleeting, and I'd really like to put a bit of fish in the freezer, then I'm going to go out and take my chances, which, of course, is generally speaking a very bad idea when you're trying to make a bad decision 
are associated with the merciless North Atlantic. So my thought, and I don't know if it makes any sense, but let's say the first weekend is dreadful and very few get out unless they have a really big uh, vessel to use. And so nobody goes out. Let's add a couple of days to the end of the proposed uh, summer piece, you know, and or into the fall, whichever people think is the right idea. So as long as we get adequate opportunity for thir- at least the minimum 39 days over the course of the year, then okay. Well, I've never got out out uh, here in Tickle Cove at the uh, fall of the year when uh, they have that extra weekend. I don't think this past couple of years I've never seen one person getting out out of uh, Tickle Cove. But that's why I think it needs to be open all during the summer. You keep track of your fish and report it. And uh, then you don't have to go taking those chances for people going out when the stormy is. And I'm sure the Tickle Cove is not the only place that is uh, stormy and hard getting out of. So if there's any changes going to be made, that's the one that I would like to see. Because you have lots of people coming home on holidays that uh, I know that I take people out when they're home on holidays, things like that. And if it's just on a weekend and they're only home for a couple of weeks, so they get one weekend, really. And if it's stormy that weekend, well, they don't get out, right? So that's the part that I'm really concerned with, and I would love to see them change that, open it up, and you can go out, but... No, if they got to bring in a, a lag system, some kind of a one or something like that, but I don't agree with the tags part. No. <clears throat> so that's where I stand on recreation fishery, and I know just about uh, on your show lately, it, there's been a lot of kick up, and I think there's still a lot of a lot of fishermen against the recreation fishery. Don't really want to see it see it any any time during the year, no. Uh, of course, there was one harvester call uh, one day last week talking about something that, that I didn't even know was a thing. It's uh, the amount of tonnage set aside for unreported catch and what that actually means. Is that all associated with the food fishery or the recreational food fishery, or is it something else we're, tr- we're still trying to figure it out? I don't know, because that, that was the first time I heard I heard that person uh, on there, right? But I didn't uh, hear... Uh, uh, never heard tell that before that there was that much fish uh, set aside or anything like that. No, me neither. I'm still trying to figure that one out. No, so I'm just hoping now, like I say, right, if there's any changes, that they're going to make a sensible change and have it for, uh, you can go out any day, you know, whichever way that you, uh, whichever system they want to bring in. So, Penny, I'd like to just say thanks for the time this morning, and I appreciate being able to get on your show. I appreciate you making time for us, Sam. Stay in touch. Okay, Penny. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, before we get to the break, let's go to line number four. Good morning, Mary. You're on the air. Hi. Do you have the number for the accountants that are doing the income tax returns for seniors? They sit up at the Legion every year. Right. And I, let's see here, because there's a couple. There's one called the Community Volunteer Income Tax Program, and that's right across the country. Uh, I do know who can help you, though. Oh, do you? That'd be fantastic. I do. I'll give you a number right now. And this should be, 
more than easy. And I'm going to get you to call Seniors NL because they actually have a list right in front of them that they oh, yeah. can help you. Can they, They'll be able to give you the one closest by. So let's see here, our location. All right, telephone number for Seniors NL is 709-707-737. 33. Yeah, they'll have a list right in front of them, and they'll be able to tell, put you in touch with the folks closest by where you live. Yeah, well, I know I, like, they do it at Black Marsh Road Legion, and I know the times I was able to get through the Legion at the Legion yesterday, but they don't know who does it and didn't have a telephone number for them. Yeah, I think they're probably all operated under that community volunteer income tax program, and Seniors okay. then is absolutely going to be able to help you out on this one. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate that. You're welcome, Mary. Good luck. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Robin. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing okay this morning. Thank you. How about you? Not too bad. Um, I am calling to talk about the social determinants of health and governance um, uh, the health accord, the, uh, the health accord, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you're familiar uh, with the health accord, I'm sure. <laughs> um, I'm also very familiar. I attended every town hall that was made available. I have read, uh, I've read the report a couple of times. I've been through every presentation. I don't know if you knew this, but on the health accord website, they have um, a copy of every presentation that was given to the team. In, in preparation for um, the report. And so there's some really interesting information there in those presentations about uh, you know, programs uh, being offered locally, research, different, um, different interventions that uh, the Health Accord could have considered when it came time to making their recommendations. And so uh, within the first uh, couple of years, they had the blueprint, right, the 10-year blueprint for how this was all going to be laid out. And in the first two to three years, um, you know, it's all broken down into infrastructure, um, human resources, and then the social determinants of health and what's required to get our, our health system back on track and more modernized um, uh, for the, the current realities that we're facing now. Um, and so I'm, I, I continue to be disappointed um, by the lack of any investment into the social determinants of health, despite the, the clear recommendations of government laid out. In, sorry, um, recommendations. Robin, maybe just shift around a little bit, see if the connection can clear up a bit. Sorry about that. Okay. Is this better? I think so. Okay. Uh, yeah, so uh, I remember the last town hall um, that they, that the health report had, and Pat Parfrey, Dr. Parfrey, was um, he was saying to us that it was up to us now that the that the health accord process was over. Once their report was delivered, it was out of their hands, and so it was up to the people of the province, the people who had tuned in to the town halls, who were invested and engaged in the sessions, to really make sure that. Um, what was seen and heard and understood through those sessions made it to uh, a policy at the end of the day. And so when I, when I saw that Dr. Crossley was being hired to manage the implementation of the health accord, I got really excited because I was very impressed with how 
he handled the whole process. He spoke about, he, he seemed to very well understand um, what was needed here. And so uh, this brings me into governance. Okay, so when Dr. Parsley was hired, he was not hired into the health department. He was not hired, he was actually hired into the executive council. And what this means is that the, the work that Dr. Parsley is now doing, and this is the same case with Rob Greenwood, who uh, is now doing our economic uh, development, world uh, regional development, um, is that we, the people, <laughs> don't have access to the work that they're doing because it is, uh, um, you know, it's considered cabinet confidence. And so now this is a very interesting way that government has taken uh, this strategy um, to, to make their work unavailable. And so here we are three years almost now into the health accord, and I've yet to see an investment in any of the social determinants of health. I wonder what they would look like, just so people have a better understanding. Like, there's a child in poverty report card out there now. 18% of youth 17 and younger living in poverty in this province. So one of the social determinants of health is, there's many, of course, man or woman, uh, where you live, level of education, amount of money you bring in the door, and a variety of other measures that impl- you know, have implications directly with your overall health and interactions with the healthcare system. But what, give us an example of what you think an obvious I'm, investment would be, because that's where I have a hard time trying to figure out, you know, identifying something to say, oh, that's a social determinant of health policy and a, a spend or an investment therein. So there's a couple of tricky ones that may indeed can be couched as recognized in the social determinants of health, you know, because as, as opposed to the conversations that we need to have, infrastructure and travel nurses and the like. The trick is just how unhealthy we are and doing something about it. I mean, if you get it right on that front, then we have much more of a uh, proactive system, which is currently simply until you're sick and we just react then. So there's a lot to this. Yeah, so housing. Housing is one too, absolutely. Housing is probably, not probably, housing is the largest one, okay? And so we actually have people who have been shifted around from shelter to shelter, to tent city to shelter, back to tent city to the gathering place, to um, the one on Lamarchant Road, to a private shelter. Like, they have been living in being pushed around from unsecure location to unsecure location for years. Okay, so my the work that I have been doing in the last couple of years has been to connect people to services to help them get back on their feet. And this has become more and more difficult as the as the time has gone on. And what I'm seeing now are, are, are people with much more complex issues because of the lack of time, um, the, the amount of time that they have been allowed to go on. I did an A-tip recently to look at um, how many people have been taking advantage of mental health uh, programs, either through um, uh, outpatient or inpatient mental health, okay? And we, we don't treat as many people as we did in 2019. I'm going to be releasing these numbers later on today, but the amount of people we are helping through our government services has decreased. So um, so what, what spurred me to call you, I actually called you last week and you were too busy, but it was the announcement for the million and a half dollars to go to the gathering place. 
And so I, I first let me please say that the, some of the gathering place staff are the best people. Robin, let's make another I, shuffle one way or the other because the connection has now gotten uh, steadily worse. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. Um, the, the gathering place, right. So the, the people who work there, some of the best people in, in the province doing their work, we... Uh, most of the people I work with wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for the gathering place. However, um, the gathering place is a stopgap measure. And the fact that we have only funded um, them uh, to, or, you know, the Band-Aid Solutions is what I call. We have only put funding towards Band-Aid Solutions. Um, we still have a number of people living down at Tent City. We still have a number of seniors who um, are stuck in their homes now with all the snow, um, have no access to enough money. If you go to the grocery store and watch people going through the, the cashier lines and see what they're buying to eat, um, people are all the um, not-for-profit services are maxed out. And even the most amazing nonprofit community groups that have been doing work for years uh, and doing it well are unable to meet the demand. Okay, so we are at a point now where there, there's no looking back. I, and I don't think the general public really truly understands how desperate this situation is. And so until um, we as a community begin to see some investment in things like housing, okay, so when I talk about housing, I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about policy. Like, you know, let's start talking about rent caps. Let's start looking at, um, you know, putting more resources into the um, service of the landlord and tenancy hearing process because people are waiting weeks for these, for these things to come through, providing more staff. For example, those new um, homes, uh, housing uh, apartments that were built down in the Janeway place, they announced, I know two people who, was, who were moved into those. It took them, after the announcement and telling the people who were moving in there, up to two weeks to actually move them into these units because they didn't have the staff to be able to handle the phone calls and make the arrangements. So there is so much time being spent and money being wasted because we don't actually have the, the, the staff resources to get these people into apartments, get them safe. Housing first means housing first. And our government likes to use that language, but they don't actually implement it in that way. And so I just would like people to start asking our health minister and their MHAs about the social determinants of health. Where is our money being spent on mental health and addictions? Where is it being spent on housing? How is the government investing in the social determinants of health? Because up until now, we've had Wellness Week, which was nothing other than a, you know, a, a comms, a comms a, exercise because there was no meat or potatoes in anything that was offered during that week. I appreciate the time this morning, Robin. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Take care. Bye. Right, bye-bye. Uh, and this directly from The Gathering Place. The Gathering Place is building a new housing facility that will include a new purpose-built shelter providing more privacy and better amenities that, than currently exist today. A floor for transitional housing, two floors of supportive housing where people will reside potentially permanently, having those arms length support provided by the staff at The Gathering Place. The new housing center will be known as Mercy House, and the new shelter within Mercy House will be known as O'Callaghan's Haven after Mr. Patrick O'Callaghan provided the initial two 
million dollars to kickstart the project. The project is also being funded by CMC Newfoundland and Labrador Housing and, the, and other donors. As quite often, we now have additional work that needs to be completed, so therefore the project is not currently fully funded, but we're working on that. Will I get another one before we uh, take a break? Line number one? Okay, let's go to line number one. Kristen, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Doing great. How about you? I'm doing okay, thanks. Um, today, I wanted to talk a little bit about the state of sidewalk clearing in St. John's. Sure. Um, you know, it's we've had multiple rounds of snow, as is normally the case this time of year, and it is becoming increasingly frustrating as someone who relies almost primarily on sidewalks to get around, along with the bus routes. Um, and it really does seem like there's no intention or effort on behalf of the city to try to make life just a little bit easier for those who are pedestrians or who try to utilize public transit. Um, I think, you know, when we wake up in the mornings and we see streets have been plowed, excellent. I live on a cul-de-sac. My street was plowed multiple times within 24 hours. Um, but sidewalks? I have no idea. I have no idea when I can get out and start walking around again. And it's the message there is, you know, we don't matter. We don't care about, you know, the people who need to get around who aren't in a car. And it's a little frustrating. You know, look, I, like I mentioned off the top of the show, I saw a couple of real close calls yesterday inside the center city area, and there would normally be sidewalks there, but they weren't plowed. Now, the city has invested more money and bought more machinery, but when, I guess, we get the kind of dumps we've had in the last several days, trying to keep up with it is going to be a monumental task. I saw them out there uh, trying to do some sidewalk work today. Then there was an accident between a vehicle and a sidewalk snowblower or plow whatever the right uh, word is so i totally get where you're coming from some of the areas where i saw the close calls were absolutely uh on some of those routes where the metro bus would be picking up and dropping off their passengers so uh, it stresses me out driving around to be honest with you well totally and and you know as someone who is out there as well like i feel that pressure too um i don't want to be in the way of traffic that's not my intention i don't think it's anyone's but we really do a disservice to you know, a large segment of the population by doing things this way, and that includes people who are seniors, people who are disabled, students, um, and new Canadians as well. And I think that says a lot about where we choose to put our resources. And it shouldn't have to be a constant fight, especially when we're in a place where we're welcoming more people into our province, um, and we want them to stay, and we want them to participate in our community and our economy. Um, this is kind of something that needs to be up there in terms of our planning. I think... In the priority lists, of course, would be the notables around hospitals, schools, 300 meters either side. And I believe right there on the top priority is the areas of, you know, close by the bus stops. So I think that's part of the priority. I don't, and I'm not trying to defend the city because I found some of the snow clearing over the past few days not great. Right? Not great. Yeah. But keeping up with it, because, I mean, even yesterday, I thought I had read the forecast at 2 to 4 centimeters. I'm guaranteed 10 fell in my driveway. So <laughs> Totally. Yeah, but nice and fluffy yeah. yesterday, so I was more than willing to be the uh, put up my hand for the shovel duties. Uh, Kristen, no, point totally. taken, point made. Anything else you'd like to add this morning? Um, no, just, just thank you for your time. And, and, you know, I'll just add I live right city center, close to the university, close to a number of schools. And it's still pretty dismal here, too. So, you know, priority or not, it's, uh, I think they need to revisit it. Appreciate the time. Thanks for the call. 
Thank you. Bye-bye. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Uh, just a quick tweet. And, you know, we're talking about mental health. And I don't know if anyone's screaming at the government to solve the mental health crisis because I don't think there's a solve available. What there needs to be, and like I see Christy Allen this past weekend, was about 168 weeks of asking for better long-term access to mental health care. So that's the consideration here is we're never going to solve issues like that. It's access to the help you need in a timely fashion. Continuity of care. You know, even if we're talking about things like in the towards recovery uh, report, talk about spending nine uh, percent at least of the healthcare budget directly on mental health services. So there's, I think, a bunch of different things. So the suggestion, and this is coming from, I'll leave her name out of it. That's not fair. She didn't ask for her name to be put forward. So rather than scream at the government to solve the mental health crisis, why not form a committee to find out what's at the core of the crisis to stop it? Mm. Never heard what role the parents, teachers, doctors play or the, leg- uh, the legalization of marijuana. I don't know what the implication would be there, but, you know, inside of schools, and you talk about teachers, there's also that ratio of students, uh, students to guidance counselors, which... At least 10 years ago, moving from one guidance counselor for 500 students, the suggestion or the recommendation was one guidance counselor for 333 students. We're not there. So there are lots of different arenas. And yes, parents talk about how their children are, where their children are, their state of mind, coping techniques, guidance and assistance. Same thing inside the world of the schools. I think we've had maybe a piecemeal approach at understanding all of these different components. And whether or not there's another committee required, but I just, in fairness, I don't think there's anything like, we're not going to stop it. We just have to make sure that the care is there. Let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Donna, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Um, appreciate your time this morning. No I just, uh, I'm a retired OBS nurse and a member of the Citizens Health Action Group, uh, also known as TAG in Gander. And um, this morning, I'd like to just take a minute to invite the citizens of Central Northeast to join us in a rally on Friday, February 23rd, in front of James Pate Memorial from 12 to 1.30. Uh, the purpose of this is uh, we want to kind of keep the pressure um, on Central House to get a timely reopening of the OBS service in Gander. Um, and we're hoping to get as many residents to stop by and spare as much time as they can on Friday. So with the I most know, recent yeah. update, so they say the, the unit is renovated, three obstetricians yeah. have been hired, the hiring of a fourth is ongoing, the nurses are trained and in place and ready to go, and they say that the unit will be fully operational early this year. Do you get cold comfort from that, or do you think there's still something missing here? I think there's still something missing because they, they released a statement um, I guess it's almost two weeks ago now, Newfoundland Health Services, saying that uh, they were making progress in the reopening and that the unit was open and they were relocating the uh, gynecological and pediatric service, which was giving, in my mind, the public the impression that those services were gone as well, but they weren't. They were just in a different location in the hospital. So that's misleading. So being a... A previous employee of Central Health, I've got a distrust of statements like that. It's not, it's not clear. It's not open. So we as a group think that the pressure needs to be kept on uh, Central Admin to have this open and open soon. Um, my knowledge of, okay, the, the unit is open. There are three obstetricians on staff. There are three pediatricians on staff. The very... Uh, most at 
Central Health could have done and said, okay, well, we're, we're open. We'll do our C-sections here. There's an obstetrician to look after uh, the patient. And they've been doing gynecological surgeries. So there's been an obstetrician there that could do call to look after these patients. It's just little things that just are not adding up in my mind. Um, and I, there's a conspiracy theory there for me. Since um, the health accord was um, spoken of several years ago, there's been, it's almost like there's been a plan there to have one service. And well, that's not conspiracy. The conspiracy, there's very clearly stated that the yeah, should be one obstetrics unit in Central and that to be in Grand Falls, Windsor. Yeah, but there was a plan put in place. In, in uh, That was in 2020, uh, 2020, 2021, the, the uh, health court. Um, I retired in 2019 because of the ongoing diversions and just uh, the unease of working there because you didn't know where you're going to work from one day to the next. So I was eligible to retire. And at that time, there was talk of more diversions. Um, But in 2020, um, the service resumed after a Pauline diversion. Um, In 2021, um, concerns with the LBS coverage in the region, so they said they're going to do short-term diversions back and forth. So from the fall of 2021, like September, the diversion was Gander. October, it was Grand Falls. November, it was Gander. December, it was Grand Falls. And then they decided, no, we're done. And the the health accord was coming about around the same time. And they closed Gander permanently at that point. So there's a, you know, it's been in the works for a while. And it just makes me angry because a lot of my previous co-workers were very well-trained, knowledgeable, obstetrical nurses who have since gone to take jobs elsewhere. So now it's on Central to reestablish this, but they have to retrain new nurses. And I just kind of want to challenge them to make this sustainable and to be a better work environment. It's interesting the relationship of this unit being reinstated in Gander and the health accord, and all which brings forward some big questions. You know, Robin earlier talking about the social determinants of health, investment in policy that would address that directly. Then it's, you know, how closely are they even going to follow their own roadmap here? Because it was pretty clear there was only going to be one obstetrics unit in Central. It was going to be in Grand Falls, Windsor. And back in 2021, there was 105 births for people that lived in GFW and about 95 for people that live in Gander. So I suppose, like most decisions, hopefully they're made with using the best available data. And like every discipline inside healthcare, especially doctors, OBGYNs, they want to be delivering babies. Surgeons want to be cutting. So that's how some of these decisions inevitably are going to have to be made but their own recommendations not being followed on this front which I think logically begs the question what other recommendations won't be followed because they were all done very thoughtfully I don't know if you participated in any of the health court stuff and their subcommittees but there was a ton of input some really important information shared considered and implemented in the eventual health court itself so I wonder how closely they're even going to follow it. Same thing I think could be said for the Premier's economic recovery team and Rothschild and McKinsey and co. I mean, we were told they're all the roadmaps. Where are we on the road? Are we even on the road? Exactly, yeah. Um, and when I, we, I go back to the Vaughn report, like all this, up to the time I left um, in 2021, 20, 
the workplace is still a toxic place. I like, I'd like to know when it comes to a central administ- like the central administration, who are they accountable to? Are they accountable to our government representatives? You know, uh, it's uh, just so frustrating. Uh, accountability for which employee? Pardon me, what discipline? Um, well, the Vaughn report back in 2018 cited yeah. a toxic workplace. Right. When I left in 2021, in my mind, it was still a toxic workplace. So what measures are being done to address those issues? Like, that's, it was a toxic workplace. That's why a lot of the obstetrical nurses left and they didn't come back. I can understand that. You know, the... And I try to give careful consideration to all these things. But even inside that realm, you know, I guess the toxicity level in one ward or one department might be, you know, as frustrating when you compare how people are feeling. But it could be different contributing factors, too, right? It could be the mismatch of characters who are on the front lines. It could be poor management. It could be poor mid-management. It could be poor scheduling. It could be all types of things. That's where I wonder, is there such a thing as one size fits all when we try to address these things or are we taking case by case identify the root of the problem and deal with it because I don't think there's one policy that's going to cure it because if you've got a bunch of nurses working together that hate each other for one reason or another maybe one's a travel nurse and one is not maybe you have a manager who's just down in the mouth and heavy-handed and a real nuisance to work with so there's I don't know how you deal with it unless you deal with each case and address what is the problem yeah. right anyway. uh, and that's what worries me about Getting it reopened and getting it sustainable. You have to have a healthy work environment. I appreciate the time. Give the folks the details yep. for the rally one more time. Yep. So the rally is on Friday, February 23rd, in front of the hospital from 12 to 1.30. I appreciate the so time. We're hoping to get a, a solid date for reopening. And if we do before that time, it'll be a celebration. It will go ahead. <laughs> Rain, sun, or snow. <laughs> Fair enough, Don. I appreciate your time this morning. Okay, thank you. Okay, you're welcome. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right, just take a break for the news. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number two. Good morning, Don. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. I'm Don Richards. I'm uh, five minutes from the boat launch here in Berenice, you know? Yep. And we got a beautiful harbor down there in Port Ray. But I heard you talking to a gentleman earlier about this boat picture in Iraq, right? Mm-hmm. And they call it a racket because there's no sense of moderation with any of it. <laughs> I'm, I'm an outdoor type. I'm a member of the, and I'm a director and a member of Newfoundland Labrador Wildlife Federation for over 20 years now. And right when this food fishery stuff started many years ago, all these various organizations, Greenwood, with the, the Boat Owner Association, Wildlife Federation, and different groups, they wanted it like people want it now, open, uh, whenever it opens, open every day till it closes. No tags, no logbooks, none of this nonsense. Because there's a lot of people in Port Grey, most of my friends are fishermen, and they got bigger boats than I have. I have got a decent boat. But usually the last few summers, weather doesn't get half decent anyway till uh, first week of July. And during the week, say, you get a lovely day. Somebody got company. They got a nice boat, stove, all the facilities on the boat. 
and they, they can't say to their friends, well, we'll take you out now, see if there's any fish, and if we get some, we'll cook up a meal. You know what I'm saying? I do. No sense of moderation law. I've got a good boat. I'm five minutes from the beautiful, beautiful boat lot from the beautiful Harbour Port of Grave here. There's lots of the zoo over here, but I'm not going to risk my life to go at it, Patty. Nor should anybody. But this this is what they put everybody in the same boat together. Yeah, which is doesn't make any sense, right? I, I participate annually, but I'll go out a couple of times. That's it. I'll just take my five, right? You know, but as I've admitted many times, I've got a couple of buddies that they are repeat offenders. They're at it all day, every day. Yeah, but like you say, Patty, I've got a question for you. What's the cheapest way to get your fish? Well, I guess it all depends. If I'm paying for the fuel, then it's probably cheaper for me to go to the grocery store. Buy it. I've done it. Years ago, before I got a boat, I used to buy it from a good friend of mine who's a fisherman. When it opens up, he's got commercial license. He sells it. It's the cheapest way to get it. Here we are now. A dollar seventy a liter, is it for uh, a gas? Right, right around, right around there, yeah. Patty, no one knows where it's going to go. What between here and the summer, <laughs> you know? And how much fish can you eat, Patty? Well, like I say, I go a couple of times, generally speaking, a year, and I get ten, and I well, keep heard, most of it. I share bit. People refer to say it that I've heard it now. I I probably shouldn't say it, but that. The Newfoundland people are greedy people. Have you heard that? I've heard it. In some cases, it's true. I, I don't pay much attention to but no matter what you got, Patty, uh, you're always going to have a bit of greed, right? Wouldn't you think? Yeah, I suppose. I mean, some people are wired that way. Some people are more altruistic than others. But as a general, broad stroke, sweeping statement, I suppose, you know, just... Even on, you know, the big 100,000 feet above sea level here, even just the way that our economy and our society is currently structured, greed is big part of it. Just plain and simple. And the, the pe- people who are fishermen, friends of mine, tell me over where we are here, Conception Bay, hmm. they tell me that uh, this is never really the bay for codfish patty. Okay. And, and the codfish only come in here once a capelin come. Because people go out earlier in their boats looking around, say, have a nice day, go out and have a look around, run around, got the fish found on the boat. If there's no uh, capelin coming in, most times codfish are not around there. They're following the fish, right? The cod are following the capelin, sure. Yeah, Yeah. so if it opens up the first, week, uh, first day of July or whatever, first week of July, people go out looking, and they they don't mark any fish or whatever, and they're they're fishing no codfish. Well, you would think you're not gonna just waste waste money, waste gas, go out if the capelin aren't around. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, people make their educated guesses whether they be mariners themselves or have uh, some actual lived experience regarding when it's more likely that the cod will be around. Sure, yeah, absolutely. The same thing and, if you're gonna uh, go to St. Vincent's to see the whales, you're not gonna go until the capelin are in. And like you say, there's no with DFO fire I'm gonna gone to meetings with the Wildlife Federation for years, workshops I'm getting and everything. 
There's no, no sense. You can't deal with them. They take your, they take your view, I believe, that we're all criminals, Patty. You know what I'm saying? A few bad apples. Every, every time we go to meetings or whatever, you've got more and more restrictions to stop people from going out in the country. And like friends of mine have said, hey, I, I don't really think of myself as a criminal. I've gotten speedy ticket once in a while. But when you go in the country hunting or fishing, a lot of people get the impression they view it's all the same. You know what I'm saying, Patty? think I understand what you're saying, Don. Uh, would you like and to say anything else? I'm fortunate, right? Pardon? Anyway, thanks very much for taking my call. No problem. Same Have touch. Have a great day, Daddy. You too, Don. Right. All right, there we go. Uh, and yeah, I mean, in the whole concept of greed, I think greed is a big part of the, generally speaking, the, the current structure of our finances and the economy at large. I mean, it just kind of is, right? And I mean, there's different levels of greed as well, isn't there? You know, it's wanting your piece of the pie versus wanting the entire pie. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, uh, Tony Wake was in the queue. He's the PC member for Stephenville Port of Port, leader of the official opposition. He's next, and then we're going to be speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the PC member for Stephenville Port of Port. He's the leader of the official opposition. Is Tony Wakem. Tony, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. I, I want to start off my comments this morning by referencing a story that's on the OCM News. And it says, demoralized, disrespected, and disregarded, registered nurses react with anger to millions spent on agency nurses. And so they should, Patty. The details of this contract that have been come out in a recent article are scathing and show a total lack of control. Once again, going according to the article, this relationship with this company started off with a lobbyist emailing a staffer in the premier's office, and shortly after that, the Liberal government entered into another sole source contract with this company. And to make matters worse, it doesn't appear that there were any kind of control mechanisms in place to monitor what was being paid, why it was being paid. And in one case, the fact that they were billed for food services, for food, for a food allowance for nurses, of something over a million dollars, and those nurses were never, never received that money, that raises lots of alarms. Absolutely. That's dubious business at the very best of it, or, or the worst example of. So I think that number is $1.6 million, which is not an insignificant sum. But, you know, for me, on top of sole source, which is always going to be a major league problem inside pro government procurements, it should never, ever, ever happen. But if Canadian health labs charges nearly double the rate of other similar agencies in the country, then why are we doing anything with this particular company, period, regardless if it was a sole source contract or otherwise? Because certainly you would hope that some due diligence at the ministerial level and or on the eighth floor would be, okay, well, here's the rates quoted by CHL. Let's see what other agencies charge. And that's exactly why I'm calling for the Auditor General to get involved, because there was there was not only rates charged, there were different rates charged to every different health authority at the time. And then all of the additional expenses that are outlined in there that they covered off, it's, it's remarkable how we can pay out $36 million or something like that in, in that range to a company without having our, our uh, due diligence done and not knowing what we're paying for. According to the article, I mean, the, the invoices weren't even broken down. It's like paying your credit card statement without looking at what's on it. 
paying for cable bills, look, I can understand paying for training and those types of things. That's pretty standard fare. Cable bills, furniture? Like, what does furniture have to do with offering healthcare services? I mean, unless we're talking about a psychiatrist's couch, and that's probably a poor choice of words, but what does this even include? And it's all so vague. Then you look at pre-pandemic numbers, about a million bucks annually, in a five-month section of last year, 35.6 million. It's egregious. Yeah, and, 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 the, and the other worry and the concern is it's not going away. Our use of travel nurses seems to be increasing, not decreasing. And that's a concern. So where exactly is our planning? You know, this liberal government is always chasing. They're never leading. Leadership means you get out in front of all of this and you put plans in place that will allow you to wean yourself off travel nurses. We haven't seen those detailed plans. We've seen lots of announcements lots of trips taken but we haven't seen the actual plan that says here's our plan to get off travel nurses so what's your plan my plan would be as i said initially and i've been saying ever along we should be starting with the students that we currently have enrolled in our nursing programs not waiting for them to graduate but as soon as they get accepted to the programs we should be in there in there offering them one full-time jobs immediately we should be focusing on retention keeping the nurses we have in our current system and looking at the ones that are currently enrolled in our nursing programs and how do we keep those nurses here in Newfoundland and Labrador. And but you do that by going in and talking to people and having those conversations. And I'm not sure that that's happening because I spoke with nursing students a few months ago here on the West Coast who are in their third year. They had not been offered any kind of full-time job. And at the same time, we're overseas recruiting nurses. Yeah, I have a friend of the family who is in nursing school at this very moment in her second year. I don't know if she approached the government or the government approached her, but the only offer on the table was long-term care. And I, I suppose, you know, if you get it right to long-term care, we'll free up some beds in the health system itself. Look, I mean, I, I get it. But uh, I've made this point many times. What would be fascinating, I think, is if you went to a graduation ceremony, a convocation, and did a uh, so-called exit interview with the graduates walking across the stage and ask them exactly that question. Have you been offered a job? When's the first time you heard from someone who's recruiting for NL Health Services? I think that would be very illuminating. I don't know what the current process is. It would be, I think, eye-opening and very helpful and possibly informative if Dr. Megan Hayes could come on the show. She is, of course, the Deputy Minister responsible for recruitment and retention because retention is a different beast. You know, retention is a lot of things. The workplace environment, it's the rate of pay, it's all those types of matters. But inside the world recruitment, if it does not start with the first day you walk into a lecture theater as a healthcare professional, a, a pending healthcare professional, we should be talking to you via email, threads, quarterly check-ins, face-to-face. Here's the opportunities that we have. Here's the parts of the province where we have a need, just so you're all informed, as opposed to waiting for Nova Scotia to come in and poach you, waiting for CHL to come in and poach you. So I, I'm with you 100%, but I'd like to know exactly what the strategy looks like uh, formally. But that's exactly what needs to happen. It needs to be a formal strategy. It needs to be a plan. And right now, this Liberal government doesn't have a plan. The only plan they've had since they were elected in 2015 was to reduce health care. They got elected in their very first budget 
was to reduce health care spending. They took money out of health care at the same time as the nurses union and other unions were in there saying, we need a review of our staffing models, both in acute and long-term care. They were asking for government's help in reviewing their, their staffing models. Maybe if we had done some of that at the beginning, we could have avoided some of the challenges we've had since COVID. I'm not going to suggest that it would have solved everything, but that's how you plan. You have the start, and if you never start, you'll never finish. And of course, it depends on what your what your viewpoint is. You know, we've had a former deputy minister who's now a minister of the crown, who who spoke up and said, you know, we perhaps have too many nurses, or we have more nurses than anywhere else in the country at the time. So if your mindset is that you have too many, or you have more than enough, then how much effort are you actually putting into recruitment and retention? Fair questions. Uh, I did broach this issue with Minister Osborne regarding access to it because quite often we don't get to talk with the senior bureaucrats who have much more of the experience under the belt because the ministerial portfolio is a bit of a turnstile. You know, sometimes they don't last long enough in their portfolio to have a firm grasp on every component of. But those are decision makers, the keepers of the information, the folks who administer the policies and programs and procedures and protocols. It'd be nice to be able to speak with them a little bit more often. Yeah. And I'll finish with that one because I think, you know, I've been in contact with people who uh, worked in the system and continue to work in the system. And I got a, a message from one that said, I found this company very big on pressure tactics and name dropping, probably the worst thing I was involved with in my career. Now that speaks volumes to what's going on in the healthcare system when, you know, it's the responsibility of the government, of the premier, of the liberal government, of the minister to take control of this issue. And instead of simply allowing it to be pay as you go with no kind of details, and if, if the things that are outlined in this article are true, there are some serious questions around how we're managing our healthcare dollars. A hundred percent. Tony, anything else you want to discuss this morning before I sneak another call in? No, Patty, that's good. I just wanted to bring that up this morning, and I'm sure I'll be talking to you again. I appreciate the time. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Tony Wakem, PC member, Stephenville, Port of Port, leader of the official opposition. Where to now? Dave, is that a five? Okay, five it is. Let's go to five. Wayne, you're on the air. Yes, good morning. Morning to you. How are you doing? I'm not too bad this morning. How about you? Not too bad, thank you. Yeah, I'm I'm calling in this morning about the uh, the job, I guess, jobs in Voices Day and the impact benefits agreement, and how they're kind of skirting around and getting around the IDA. And uh, I think it needs to be addressed and be interesting to see if there's more people out there that have the same issues in, in trying to get work in Voices Day. What and is the issue? Just. Yeah, in fact, I'm Aboriginal, uh, and I've uh, I've worked in Voices Bay, and I applied on the same job that I've had before, and then all of a sudden, you're not even qualified for an interview, and it's given to to non-Aboriginals when the IBA states that, you know, you if there's a qualified Indigenous person, they need they should have the job first, which is you know rightly so. I mean, I got no qualms if there was someone, if there's more qualified people out there that get it that that are indigenous. But I firmly uh, believe that the IBA was put in place so that you know we wouldn't be going down this road. But 
I find it on several occasions now. And, you know, you talk to people and they've had similar instances where you're not even given an interview when you should at least be given, you know, at least have that ability to be able to see if you qualified for the position. Yeah, so if I remember correctly, inside the impact benefits agreement, does it say, is there a certain percentage of the workforce that is to be Aboriginal? Because at this point, it's somewhere around 50 or 51% of the, somewhere in the neighborhood of 50, uh, 500 people working uh, at Voices Bay are Aboriginal. So is there a specific percentage? There is. I'm not sure what it is, but I still think once it comes to that percentage, they shouldn't say, okay, we met our quota. And no, no, I'm not suggesting that. I'm just looking for the the benchmark. That's all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're 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 right. I'm sure there is a benchmark, and I'm not sure what it is. And we do have a lot of people that uh, you know are working in the kitchen and housekeeping department, and we need more. I feel in in management, in upper upper level management. And like I said, I've actually worked in this job, and I had to push. To even get an interview because I know the person who would have been my boss, you know, which I should have had the job. And he was like, no, he's not even qualified. I'm not even going to give him an interview. So again, I had to push through the company uh, who was do- actually doing the hiring and say, listen, there is an IBA that I should at least be able to get an interview for this job. Not saying that I should get it because I'm Aboriginal but I should be at least given the courtesy of giving an interview because one is qualified. So just walk me through that a little bit further. So you say putting pressure on the company, you mean Voices Bay or Valet itself or one of the contractors working for Valet? Yeah, no, one of the contractors. Okay. You know, Valet is the client, and this company is, I don't mind saying it, uh, I spoke to them, and they actually, they were quite shocked that I didn't get an interview. They're based out of Ontario, and I said, just following up, and they said, like, you know, the manager came back and said that your resume didn't uh, he feel qualified for you to get an interview and I said well I'm quite shocked because I actually held that job and then you know they said they were quite shocked as well so I said well there is an IBA in place so I pushed that and said that I will, will be going to the Aboriginal Affairs of Valet of, of the Nazi-Able government and with that it was like oh okay you'll get an interview but again, the way they get around it is they don't have anyone else from the company on the interview. It's just you and them. So then it's your word against their word, which, you know, again, if, if someone else gets a job, that's perfectly fine. But I think that they should have at least something in place so that they have another representative there so that, boom, if you are qualified, you should get it. You know, that's I guess that's where I'm going. And I did push the IBA, and it's under investigation, and it's been over three weeks, and still nothing. But you know, I suppose I, I don't know what the rationale is for rejecting one applicant or application or otherwise. So the fact of the matter is, whatever the job you were looking for and the job description itself, you have the qualifications attached. Period. Oh, most well, certainly. I, I like I said, I've been in that job. I've done that job, and it's. Uh, and, and again, like I don't mind. It's not being sour that I didn't get the job. In a way, yes, but when you can't get answers as to why, that's to me is the frustrating part. When you know you're qualified, when you know you can do this job, and one person says no, it's. So I guess that's where I'm. I'm, I'm coming from with with the whole idea and and the valley. I think there's a lot more of it going on, individually. So okay. Again, I just wanted I just wanted to raise it. 
Uh, and I'm glad you called, Wayne. Appreciate the time. All right. Thank you. You have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking Metro Bus. And Jeff wants to opine about what road conditions mean for tourism. That's a good one. And snow clearing and seniors. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. <clears throat> Let's keep going. Uh, let's go to line number one. Take a morning to one of the candidates uh, running in Ward 4 here in the city of St. John's. That's Tom Davis. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. I want to start by hoping everyone involved in the uh, accident involving the uh, sidewalk plow in, on Kelsey Drive is okay. And uh, remind everybody to give the snow clearing equipment a wide berth. They're out there. they got a tough job to do. Sometimes their visibility is not great with blowing snow and stuff. So if you see anybody, one of our plow or even a private plow operator working, give them a wide, wide berth. I don't know if it's just me or this is uh, anecdotal and nothing more, but there looks, there seems to be more plows on the front of pickups than I've ever seen. I mean, they're absolutely everywhere. I suppose there's a few dollars to be made at it, and some people maybe do it for a matter of their own convenience, but it seems to be an awful lot of them out there. And that's neither here nor there. No, I have one, and so I'm... uh more than familiar, I, I just clear my building's lot in my house. I'm, I'm not out there trying to make a dollar. You can tear up a lot of people's lawns, and you can tear up your equipment pretty fast, too. So it's a, yeah, it's And I'll also right. add to that, even though that's not what you called about, is we understand that when the snow is falling as frequently as it has here in the last week, that you've got a lot of contracts you're trying to satisfy and buddies you're trying to help, but that does not give you cause to be zipping around like a bat out of hell just simply because you're busy. Yeah, and I'll add to that as well, that uh, you're not allowed to plow across streets, and please don't fill in um, sidewalks that have already been plowed by the city. I I saw something downtown that Ted Blades put up. uh, I saw it too, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it it is tough, though, because we're running out of places to put it, you know, but but hopefully we'll get a bit of rain this week instead of snow, and we'll... And let's get the snowblowers out there, because it looks like there's more snow coming. Yeah, well, it could be rain. I'm, I'm pulling for rain, so oh, hopefully the Avalon gets rain. We'll see. I also want to thank John. After I called last Tuesday, he came on and, and kind of held me to task for seemingly being down on recreation, and, and, and I thought about it all week. It was a reference I made to a $10 million ad to the Muse Center for a walking track and a steam room. And, and you know, I, I just want to acknowledge that, you know, obviously I'm, I'm a huge supporter of recreation. I've been in the business for 34 years, recreation. However, you know, not all spends are the same. And, you know, in, in walking around, I was down at Chalker Place, and they've got a small little chain linked in uh, that's fully chained like now be- in because the swings were all rusted. So, so Chalker Place has no park. And when I look at that, the very small square foot, I, I, I think, man, you spent $30,000 or $40,000 on that spot, and now the, the children in that area uh, have a place to play. I hear from Kim out here, it's the same thing. Someone worked out, reached out from Rabbit Town, said they used to have a, a park there. They don't have it anymore. It's not anymore for, but that's relevant. And so, you know, you know, if you spend fifty thousand dollars and you get you find a place for neighborhood children to play, ten million dollars builds a lot of parks. So, you know, sometimes it's 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 complicated, it's nuanced. But my point overall is we have to spend the money of the taxpayers wisely and uh, and maximize the kids playing because the other thing to bear in mind too is that when you go to paul reynolds or to the muse center you pay to go in there and and, and even if it's four or five dollars that still adds up for a family so having parks that are outside that they can play on um better spend of 10 million dollars in my opinion but i'll leave it at that okay i want to talk about um and it's, it's kind of you know the city works hand in hand the snow clearing and metrobus and 
last Wednesday we had a big storm and, and logically, you know, nobody should have been on the roads. Um, Thursday, it was still blustery. There's no debate. But it, it seems like both Thursday and Sunday that Metrobus just closed for the whole day. And I used to remember delayed openings, and it doesn't seem like that's a thing anymore. On a Thursday, you know, we go from 6.30 till midnight with Metrobus, and on a Sunday it's um, it's like 8.30 till 8 p.m. And on, on Sunday I, I was involved in a wedding show, and, and, and the promoter, she delayed it till 1 o'clock, and and I was on my way down. I was running a little late because I was plowing. And uh, and there was a young girl, uh, woman, on a bus stop. And I stopped. I said, you know, the buses aren't running. And she, you could tell she was visibly upset. And she said, well, I'm waiting for a cab now. And, and, and my just heart just went out to her because at this point, the sun was peeking through. There was no – it was, wasn't – you know, for, it was 1 o'clock on Sunday. So, you know, it just makes me wonder whether or not – you know, we should be well. I, not even wondering, stating firmly that Metrobus needs to be. I mean, I don't know what logic would be just to close for the whole day. Is that just an easy decision now? I mean, Lloyd Parrott was on last week, and you know, we live in a northern climate, and and the job of our public service is to keep our, you know everything functioning. And, and you know, what do we do? Like last week, Metrobus didn't run for three days, for example, and and you know. It's a good chance that 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 the type of weather we're getting now is going to continue, and and I I just feel like you know what you know what's next? Like Marine Atlantic doesn't run unless the sea state is two meters. Fishers don't go out fishing. The oil industry stops. Like like I think the, we need to take a step back and realize that that we have to have a functioning economy. And when I was at that wedding show, looking around at the small business owners, and you know there was probably one or two who didn't make it, and some of them were driving in from from Bay Robertson. And I thought, like, this is the way the economy functions. Like, people, not everybody maybe can get to work. But, you know, the malls were open, the restaurants were open, the services that we all rely on. And all those people, a lot of those people don't have cars. So so they rely on, on Metrobus, for example, to get to work. And obviously the businesses, business owners and the customers all rely on those people to get to work. And, and if you've got to take a cab back and forth to work and you have a six or eight-hour shift, well, you know, that, that's just going to wipe out any money you have. And, you know, not to mention the fact if we close because we can't keep the streets open, then, then obviously those people don't earn any money. And the response to that is not to pay them anyway because the small businesses and the customers with inflation can't afford to pay everybody just because we can't keep the city open. Or so There's going to be circumstances me, where closures are required. I mean, safety's got to be correct. a serious consideration. But Metrobus, it's bigger than Metrobus because there's an awful lot of business and government decisions are based on when Metrobus is off the road, everything's shut. And it used to be Metrobus was that bellwether, right? That's what people look to. If there's an issue where we want to take the bus off the road at 4 o'clock, okay, well, we're shutting down the business at 3 o'clock. But now with decisions made at 7 o'clock in the morning for the entirety of the day, then I'm not so sure how we've arrived here either. Now, you mentioned the fishery and the oil companies and stuff. They make their own individual decisions. Like, if I'm a fish harvester and a 65-footer, I'm going to go out when I deem it to be safe, and I'm not when it's not. The oil business will proceed on their own uh, impact assessment, too, but very much different than government or arms-length operations like Metrobus. So, it's bigger than Metrobus. That's one thing for absolutely positive, because we all remember over the years, is that when the buses came off the road, that was a sure sign that everything else was closing. And it was brutal out there. Like, you know, it wasn't fit for men it was or not. beasts at, when, when the Metrobus came off. And, and, and I realize safety is important, but, but you know, we're, we're 
coming very close to have a non-functioning society with hospitals and government just, you know, being, you know, hospitals being closed on weekends because we can't staff them or even all week, weekdays. And, and, you know, this would be unheard of years ago. And everything is on this slippery slope. And, and, you know, as obviously I'm running to to be the representative for Ward 4, and and that's above my pay grade. But, you know, I I think everybody's got to have a got to hold their elected people and our paid uh, public servants accountable to a higher standard because, um, you know, if you're home in your house and you don't need to go anywhere, that's fine. But if you have a doctor's appointment to get to, that could be life and death. If you have a job to get to, that's that's the difference between you having food on the table and, and, and your rent paid. Like these are really, really important. And, and not decisions to be made lightly when you're, you know, you get up in the morning and, uh, you know, look like the weather forecast is bad. Okay, well, let's make the the, the very final decision of being closed for all day. So I just want to remind everybody, ballots are being mailed out at the end of the week for the Ward 4 by-election for City of St. John's, and please uh, consider Tom Davis when you're making your check. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Tom. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. I mean, in different organizations and businesses will make, you know, different decisions based on forecast. So if I have a retail operation with three adult employees, then it's probably a much different calculation versus if you're Terry Hall and deciding to close the schools. But remember that some of these storm days and some we've had some, you know, misfires where the forecast really didn't manifest itself and consequently we had closures where probably didn't need to do it, even though no one's saying we should be unsafe and throwing the kids to the wolves. No one's saying that at all. But then you question, for instance, like some of those closures where it really wasn't that bad, the government shut down. Nobody was going to work working for the provincial government. No one working in the federation building. So I think there's different tools to make these types of decisions. If it's going to get bad after lunch, it's one thing to close a school for a half day, which is a frustrating issue for many parents. But it's vastly different if, for instance, if I'm working for the provincial government at the confederation building, the storm is not supposed to get bad till 1 o'clock, say. Why am I home all day? Not really sure I understand that. Let's take a break. When we come back, uh, Jeff wants to talk about tourism and the roads. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Jeff, you're on the air. Good morning, sir. How are you? Doing grand. How about yourself? I'm good, sir. Good. Appreciate you taking my call. Anytime. Um, I was hoping Tony Wickham was still on the line. I heard him there this morning. Um, I'm, re- I'm reaching out. I have been for in contact with Tony Wake and Gil Hutchings there for years now regarding the road conditions on the Port of Port Peninsula. Um, it drastically affects tourism. People back and forth commuting for work, like lower coal mines, Atlantic Minerals is a huge source of income and a lot of people work in the area and along from that area back and forth towards Teamville and Cornerbrook. Um, I know many people is after having damages to their vehicles. Um, never mind trying to drink a coffee in your morning coffee on the route. I'm just, I'm just wondering how, how is anybody supposed to go about trying to get this repaired? I don't know where the priority list lies. You know, we've got that five-year plan, and there's some wiggle room available for government, you know, if and when there's a washout or what have you. So I don't know what roads are coming up in the Port of Port Peninsula. The last time I was out there, it was less than ideal, I'll say. But I'll also add to that, Jeff, that I've, you know, over the last number of years, I've been around a lot of the province, and, man, the roads are bad most everywhere. 
They really oh, are. And don't, don't get the folks of Labrador going because the roads of Labrador are generally atrocious, <laughs> not even the road to the North Coast. So I think road work is big. Well, now government is patting themselves on the back pretty aggressively with the unprecedented spend of road work this year in excess of $200 million. Usually it was it used to spend about $85 million. So huge money is being spent. But I can't remember what the total kilometers of roads on the island, just uh, the island alone are. But holy smokes, there's a lot of bad roads. And some roads that are in terrible condition that are quote-unquote roads to almost nowhere yes so. exactly and um, I know for, I know from experience I've been from this side of the island to St. John's and soon as you get out past Deer Lake say even far as Springdale the roads are immaculate on the highways um, my big concern is that the Port of Our Peninsula is essentially a main highway connecting the communities and again it is atrocious how how poor the conditions are for the roads um I, and again talking about putting money in the budget for for road repairs um last year i spoke with mr wakeham on it and he said there was tenders being put out for the west coast of newfoundland um part of our peninsula area and i'm in a position where i monitor tenders and bid projects and uh, there was absolutely nothing for this side of the island other than Cole Brook. Okay. Now, I don't negate I don't negate the fact that Cole Brook is a very bad road, but as a stretch of road that's serving a small community with a couple of hundred people, as where Route 460 to the Port of Bar Peninsula, which is roughly 200 kilometer range, it, it serves multiple communities, multiple people for hospital back and forth appointments, work appointments, uh, just coming in to do your regular everyday shopping for your family. And again, t- touching on tourism, people don't want to travel that way because of the roads. So the local communities and shops, like you know, in at the tea, uh, tea by the sea, and 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 in at the Cape, and the other little local shops, they're not seeing the business due to these road conditions. Well, I mean, I know it firsthand. I don't know if it was this past summer or maybe so, but someone who was originally from here so knew that this program existed, she was here with her husband uh, as tourists, and they made their way around to some of the notable notable spots and ended up pulling over on the side of the road with a flat tire to call me to tell us how bad it was. So obviously it has an impact. You know, things like the food and the hospitality, and we're really nice to to, uh, tourists, maybe not so nice to each other all the time. Uh, So the culinary scene and the whether or not the place is dirty, like I tell I tell this story all the time. I picked up friends of mine there a number of years ago, and we were just coming from the airport to my home in the East End. We were only on that stretch of, I guess, Portugal Cove Road for 500 meters before one of the people in the backseat said, man, filthy here. I'm like, oh, God, how embarrassing, right? So things like that absolutely contribute to people's decision to come in the first place or to return. Yep, and um, another point regarding the roads that I've advocated for with these local associations and trying to be on a, a member on the board actually is uh, is, is the ATV tourism. Um, you take places like uh, Port of Bass and Cornbrook recently. They open up a lot of public roads to ATV and UTV traffic, which drastically increased their tourism. Uh, and in Steamville, we, you know, Steamville, Newfoundland, uh, there are a few roads, but I've been after, why aren't they extending that out to the peninsula also? And following all your regular guidelines, you know, your insurance, your license all, and all whatnot, again, to increase tourism and bring that, bring that economy up to the local shops. Yeah, I guess that decision was made at the municipal level, right? So that was uh, Jim Parsons and Gornbrook said, let's allow the ATVs to come through, and apparently worked out famously. So yes. you're suggesting that the province get in on the action and expand the allowable terrain for ATVs? 
Yes, yes, that's a and that's a, that's a huge, huge issue that I'm on board with, and I have been to the ATV Association. Um, again, mention them again, Mr. Wakeham, um, Touchings. Um, everybody I can think of regarding these facts, the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure. Everybody says soy is not our is not our dog, for lack of a better term. You need to go to such and such. Each one keeps passing the buck, and nobody's addressing addressing the issues. So the roads that you're talking about expanding on would they include highway? Well, it'll be the main stretch of road. Yeah, because some of the, I mean, the relationship between an ATV, the type of tires, and the way it maneuvers, pavement is, generally speaking, a pretty dangerous environment for an ATV. Now, it's one thing to be driving down Main Street in Quarterbrook, quite another to be driving down uh, a road that has a speed limit of 100. So Now, the main highway that connects all these roads that I've been speaking about is 50 to 60 kilometers an hour. Okay. Um, the road regulations for ATV is 40 kilometers an hour. Which is fine. You gotta you gotta adhere to the local traffic rules and laws and regulations. Um, again, and as for the tires, like I brought up to government and local municipalities, there's DOT approved radial tires. Now it's not like it was 20 years ago when everybody was on their three wheel or Honda. That was a, a hazard waiting to happen. Yeah. The you know what's what's safer what's what's safer than a than a side-by-side with a full roll cage or two-wheel motorbike zipping down the highway doing 100 kilometers an hour. Yeah, well, of course, the two-wheel motorbike, unless it's got a license and the proper tires for a pavement, is taking the, their own risk and breaking the law anyway. Uh, anything else you want to add this morning, Jeff? Uh, no, no. Um, again, I appreciate the call. Hopefully somebody can do something with the road conditions and... Let's, let's hope for, for a better future for tourism on the West Coast. Here, here. Tourism is a growth sector. We can absolutely be doing better. We Sometimes I think we rest on our laurels, right? We'll talk about yes. how many people visit versus looking at comparable jurisdictions and what they've done. Now, some of that would be air access and those types of issues, which is a bit beyond the scope of our roadwork infrastructure chat. Uh, Jeff, appreciate your time. Stay in touch. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep going. Line number six. Rob, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Um, yeah, and I just wanted to bring up uh, about snow clearing and stuff like that, and people walking. I know the out here in CBS. Um, I think CBS should just park their trucks and put them on the side of the road because th- their plows don't do nothing out here because the roads are just so uneven and worn, and all they're doing is tearing it up, making bigger potholes. Um, it's it's just unfit to be on. Um, it's just brutal. Now, I'm sure plows can't contribute to roads being damaged, but we still need the blades down to get the snow out of the way, don't we? But they're not they're not getting the snow out of the way. What is I, that? I, I was just up and down the road there on the CBS Highway here down down the lower road, and. The, the cars that are really low low to the road are clearing more snow than the plows have done. <laughs> not great. Okay. Yep. No, it's not great at all. There's there's no use to having them on the road um, because they're, the roads are just atrocious, as as you know the, the previous caller just said. You know, out, out his way too. Um, it's just it's just absolutely insane. The, the waste, you know, of money that these clowns do at, at City Hall. They just have no idea what they're doing. Nobody has, they couldn't organize a shoebox. It's just unbelievable. 
the, the, the waste that goes on around out here. Yeah, I mean, I can only comment really, I guess, on what I've seen up close and personal, which has been inside the confines of the city of St. John's, other than one little zip I had to make. And look, I get it. And this is not defending anybody or anything. But with the 12,000 kilometers of roads and however many thousands of kilometers of sidewalks and 70 centimeters dump over the course of a few days, I don't think anyone's going to be perfect. Now, I've been to Quebec many, many times, Quebec City, where one of my sons was living for a couple of years, and they've got it down to a science. I mean, I just can't imagine how much money they spend on it, and I guess that would be the crux of the matter, isn't it? Do you Are people willing to spend more in property taxes for enhanced snow-clearing operations? Because with a 15-centimeter dump uh, on an overnight in that city, wake up the next morning, and they've already got the snowblowers and the trucks in action every time. So they oh, must no, have what? an exorbitant bill for snow-clearing, but certainly better for pedestrians and motorists alike. Well, no, absolutely. It's just the type of equipment, but the, it's the guys that are you know, trying to run the show they really have no idea what it takes to, to snow clear. And, you know, yes, there's only there's only a, a certain amount of places where you can put it. You know, like I know out west, I don't, you were out west for a while. I was out west and up up in the Mac there. They, they only plowed twice a year. That's all they did. You, you ran over it and you just made your thing and twice a year they would come in with the the graders and the and the big snow blowers and the dump trucks and just clear it all out and it'd be gone you know fair enough uh, I've got to get to the news but I'm glad you called Rob okay then we'll we'll talk again sounds good take care Cheers, buddy. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, we had a caller earlier senior lady looking for uh, access to a program where People were doing tax returns, you know, for the most part, uncomplicated tax returns for seniors. And so here it is. Uh, our good buddy, Michael Cole, I believe, sent this along. Let me make sure. Yeah, Michael Cole. The clinic that that lady was looking for every Tuesday at the Royal Canadian Legion, Black Marsh Road from 9.30 to 11.30 uh, a.m., I assume that is, from March 26th to April 30th. So upcoming folks, uh, if you need some help with your taxes being prepared, at the Royal Canadian Legion, Black Marsh Road, 9.30 to 11.30, from March 26th to the 30th of April. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, Oscar's there to talk about the food, fishery, and wind energy. And then Leela Evans, the MHA for Torngat Mounds, wants to talk about the travel nurse story. Don't go away. You're listening to a rebroadcast of VOCM Open Line. Have your say by calling 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626 and listen live weekday mornings at 9 a.m. Welcome back. And as I was reminded uh, during the newscast, Main Road through CBS, Route 60 is the responsibility of the Department of Transportation and not the town of CBS. Let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number three. Oscar, you're on the air. Oh, good morning. Morning. Hey, how are you and yours? I'm grand today, thanks. How about you? Good, good, thanks. Um, wanted to speak about the food fishery. Okay. The food fishery is not in trouble. Um, for 600 years plus, we've been catching fish off Newfoundland's coast. And uh, since John Cabot discovered, uh, well, the indigenous people were here before him. And so that's really going to say over 600 years. Um, and uh, the problem with the fishery was was not our problem. It's a government problem. And uh, back in the late 70s, 
they started the uh, winter fishery, and they went out with all their draggers. And I talked to a guy in 1987 up in the north coast, up in Cooks Harbor. I pastored up there. And uh, he told me that they were fishing in the winter, and they were fishing with up to their knees in spawn. Now, we all know that you can't drag up spawn and expect to get fish. A hundred percent, and yet we allow it. So, so it's not the, the food fishery is a problem. It's the stupidity of the government for giving people the uh, okay to go winter fishing. Now, uh, since then, they stopped that and then shut down the fishery, the commercial fishery, in 1992. There's lots of fish out there. And my suggestion would be is let everybody go out when they want, get a fish. I'll go out in my boat. I'll get half a dozen fish. I'll bring them ashore. I'll, I'll eat them. When they're gone, I'll go and get another half a dozen. When I was a boy, I was born and raised in, in Birchie at Bombay. I used to get on my coaster, and I'd go down to the house. I'd go out. My uncle was putting his nits and catch herring for in the spring for lobster fishing. And I'd and he'd have the holes drilled in the house, and we'd fish for the holes. I'd fill up my coaster, bring them home. We'd eat fish until uh, we didn't need no more, until they were gone. And then I'd go again. We don't want to abuse the fishery. Fishermen, uh, the food fishery is not going to abuse the fishery. Just let us go out, get our few fish, come ashore, and eat the fish. When we want more, we'll go and get them. That's as simple as I can put it. Yeah, I mean, I don't think, well, certainly it's not my opinion that the food fishery is a problem. It's very likely it's absolutely not. But the point you make about, you know, fishing during the spawning season and on the spawning grounds has never made any sense to me. Add to it, we don't really know exactly what percentage of the variety of species that are actually allowed to be caught by Canadian harvesters versus foreign boats. We do know they quite often come inside the 200-mile limit, and even if they're fishing just on the skirts of 200 miles, we don't really know exactly how much they're taking. It's never really carefully or accurately reported. And, you know, add all kinds of different conversations with no wild salmon harvest here, but a little one in PEI, or pardon me, a St. Pierre, another one in Greenland, which we apparently had an arrangement about the amount taken in the reporting process. That has never been abided by. So there's lots of confusing decisions made by various governments about how and where and when we fish. Yes, absolutely. And uh, it's my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, PEI, it's my understanding that you can go out and fish and get five fish anytime you want. I I don't know if that's 100% accurate, but they do have much more laxed uh, season than we do. No doubt about that. Yeah. Anyway, uh, uh, that's my take on the fishery. As far as I'm concerned, we're not in trouble when it comes to the fishery anymore. And uh, we've rebounded well. And whenever I get a chance to go, which I don't have, I don't have a working boat right now, and um, when I get a chance to go and get a few fish, I'm glad, and uh, I appreciate uh, going out with my brother-in-law, and I got my fish last fall, which was wonderful. Anyways, uh, the other thing is that uh, if if I don't uh, get out with somebody, I buy my fish. Uh, this year, this year past, I got it for four dollars a pound. Now, uh, filleted, uh, skinned, everything, and beautiful fish. And so it's really not that expensive if you look at it. Anyways, the other thing I wanted to mention is uh, is the um, 
is the hydroelectric uh, with the uh, windmills. Uh, I think that the pro- one of the problems we have with that is they're putting windmills in places where people have cabins and stuff like that. No need. We can go. You can go on any hilltop in Newfoundland, anywhere on this province, and get lots of wind to to uh, run these farms. And you got we got thousands upon thousands of acres of land off the highway that nobody's living and no cabins. Why would you why would you go into a road like in Botwood area and go into a road central Newfoundland and put up a windmill or put up a, a, a wind farm where there's people with cabins and, and, and is going to kill their their uh, land value and their cabin value? It's a fair question. We had a conversation with a gentleman last week who was talking about exactly that in the area that of concern was New Bay Pond. Yeah, and so, exactly. That's the reason I. That's the reason I called actually. Okay, because I mean, and this is even bigger than where they're building it, because apparently they had a land lottery draw, and he got involved and he spent some money yeah. to clear the land and all the rest of it. And lo and behold, there was already the possibility for these wind turbines to be proposed for that exact region. So it yeah. comes across as patently unfair not to have all the information before you put a bid on a piece of property. Yeah, and uh, and also like like I said. You can get wind enough to run those wind farms uh, anywhere in Newfoundland. Don't have, you don't have to go in in the road where people got cabins. Yeah. I mean, the locations, certain parts of the province, we don't get a whole lot of conversation about it. And, of course, notably on the Port of Port Peninsula, where the footprint of these windmills will be about 40% of the peninsula itself. So that is significant. Plus, I don't think we've really firmly wrapped our minds around just how big these things are. Look, we're, we can all picture wind turbines in our mind's eye. You know, offshore looks different than onshore. I've seen some, for instance, in Scotland where they're big, but they're not as big as what we're talking about here. We're talking about 200 yep. meters. And for context, Signal Hill from the sea, uh, from the water level to the top of Signal Hill is 167 meters. These are 200 yep. meters. Confederation building is 64 meters tall. These are 200 meters. Yeah. They're huge. They're huge. Absolutely. And I'm not making the point that it's good, bad, or different. Is that I don't think we've really firmly understood how, just how big they are. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's basically all I wanted to uh, discuss, uh, Patty. And uh, I appreciate the call. appreciate you taking my call. And uh, one of these days when uh, I hear something else, I'll want to chime in. You have a wonderful day, my friend. God bless you. The same to you. Thanks for the call. Take care. Oh, bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Yeah, uh, let's take a break on time. Let's come back and speak with the NDP member for Torngat Mountains about the travel nurses. That's Leela Evans. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to Leela Evans. She's the NDP member for Torngat Mountains. Good morning, Leela. You're on the air. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Yeah, uh, sorry about that. Um, yeah, I was just calling in to, to um, talk a little bit about the calls for the Auditor General to investigate the travel nurses. Now, Patty, that's not something that's new to the NDP. Um, Jim Din, our leader, Jordan, and myself, we've been we've been calling for that investigation, you know, since early last last year. In in December, we actually put out a press release, and uh, letters were sent, um, not just um, you know an investigation by the Auditor General into the uh, travel nurses, but but into Newfoundland Labrador Health Services and uh, the the predecessor, the regional health um, authorities. 
because what we find is um, it's not above board. There's something shady going on, and the Globe and Mail, you know, has you know pr- produced this story with all these facts in there, and it's quite outrageous. But I think we need to have the Auditor General investigate to really expose it. And what we see now, unfortunately, is with with this particular government, we see a history. Uh, you know, where we expose things either to an ATIP, like, for example, the um, investigation into the security breach, you know, with all the healthcare records where Russian hackers actually got a hold of our private health information. And through ATIP, we found that for years, the Minister of Health knew about these risks. And also, if the, if the systems would have been upgraded, changed out, to protect our our personal information, also there would have been cost savings, and also it would improve the healthcare system. And we learned that through ATIP, you know. And then we also look at the Auditor General's investigations, like the one to Nelcor, like outrageous things. When we look at where did the billions of dollars in overspending go, like one of the crazy, foolish things I, I should use the word foolish. Um, was, you know, moving a hot tub across the country for uh, a new employee. But it resonates when you, when you, when you read the Global, Global Mail's articles there. Like some of the things that they done for these travel nurses was pet transportation, new furniture. When our local nurses who are invested in our communities are calling for some improvements, some benefits so they can have quality of life. So to me, Patty, we've been calling for this investigation because I think we need to expose, like, really how deep this goes. And also, it will show that what the nurses' unions and what the nurses themselves are calling for is not unreasonable. This life balance, safer workplaces, not having our our, our nurses in the in the system get so burnt out and and so downtrodden that they they leave, and that's what's happening. You know, it's not just a pandemic. It's just not what happened because of COVID. It's because you know, like there there was no respect given to the nurses, and and to me to hear the government say we can't afford to get rid of these travel nurses uh you know they're 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 providing a, a an essential service uh you know um, um we 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 need to keep them we can't we can't afford to transition off of them yeah well i mean at some point there might be a dollop of truth to that given the fact that how many travel nurses are in the system and the amount of money being paid the problem is how we got here so just specifically you know like when people say you know it's one thing to call for the auditor general but what do we really get when those investigations take place personally i think uh, they do a critical job for us and you know for instance when there was a the auditor general went into nalcor it did bring upon some changes like doing away with the bonuses and control of the management salaries and things like that so that's an example pragmatically about how it can work but in other arenas nothing has really changed people have not been held to account so when you look at this travel nurse issue what specifically do you think jumps off the page which would be a concern for the auditor general is it the sole source contract is it the decision to pay for things like training and cable bills and meals and that are much more than the public sector workers like what is what specifically do you think is the big concern for me it's sole source contract to start there Yes, it, it was, and how did how did we you know how did we get here, right? I mean, um, you know, and and also like when you look at 
when you look at the cost that's being uh, like wasted and not invested in our public health care like like some of the some of the you know some of the really sad things come up like for example that 1.6 billion dollars that was that was quoted where the private contractor was 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 paid 1.6 million dollars for meals for these travel nurses but when the nurses were questioned who are in in, in the, who are travel nurses they said that they had to pay for their own food and they never received it so where did that 1.6 billion dollars go that was paid to the contractor it are it basically went in for more profit pro, uh, profits it went straight into their pockets yeah. if they didn't so, distribute it to the nurses that they have hired yep. for their meals and they simply the money. You know, and, and uh, like I'll just go back now to to uh, you know the NDP press release that was put out in December that I, w- I was I was talking about because I you know I heard I heard Tony Wakeham on the radio you know talking about uh, we need to auditor general to investigate like all the things that um, um, was was said but like we've been calling for it and, and one of the things we talked about is um, the use of these for-profit nursing agencies costing the province 18.4 billion dollars per year compared to the $4.1 million that our public employed nurses cost. Right. So when you look at when you look at it, yeah, they're providing a, a service, but at what cost? Like we could actually lift up our public health care system. We could we could pick up and, and, and boost our system by taking that money that's going to to private companies and also to travel nurses who are making two to three times what our our our, our uh, local nurses are making. You know, and and also they can, you know, like what's what's not fair? There's so much unfairness. It's, it's so much unfairness to our local lo- local nurses. It's so disrespectful, and and I I think we we need to know exactly what's going on. Like what's this government um, hiding? Um, because we 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 learn a lot from these auditor generals' reports, and what happens is it allows us. To to see it gets exposed and then corrective action has to be taken right yeah and as usual it's not necessarily how much we spend but it's how we spend it so 36.5 million dollars over the course of five months could do a lot to rectify some of the concerns being brought forward for instance by Yvette coffee it really could so at this point we've got a snowball going downhill and how and where it stops is anybody's guess but at some point we've got to put up some guardrails to stop the bloody snowball Yes, we do. And, and also, one thing I'd like to point out, and, and this is really true, you know, especially for rural Newfoundland and Labrador, and, and you know, I see it in my district, is, you know, it doesn't matter how invested travel nurses are in providing good health care. They are not familiar with our communities and our towns, uh, you know, even even our larger towns and cities. Uh, you know, they're, they're not familiar with it, but our local nurses are invested in our communities. They're knowledgeable of the customs and, and what's going on in the, the region, and they're able to actually provide, I think, a much better level of care, and it's not fair to them. It's not fair to our, to our, to our nurses that they are struggling. They're forced to work back-to-back shifts they're short-staffed and and we see it and and unfortunately patty when you look at our health care people don't realize how bad it is and how bad it's been allowed to get unless you or a loved loved one needs to actually access that health care 
you know and and it's only then when you when you arrive at emerge and you're there for you know 10 to 12 hours uh, you know or when you're trying to get a test a test like a blood test or an ultrasound or a scan or you're trying to get surgery even something like cataracts something like hip surgery you know like for for us the nurses are essential part of the healthcare system and we are allowing them to be broken and tossed away because a lot of the nurses have left the system because they don't have quality of life it's impacted their mental health it's impacted their families and then to to really pour, pour salt on the wounds to add inf- um, offense to the injury is we look and see these outrageous salaries and benefits and perks being paid to private companies to hire travel nurses who who are not invested in our communities. They may be good people, you know, uh, and and, uh, actually some of the local nurses have left to become travel nurses because they, they want quality of life. So we need to stop it. And it needs to begin reverses. Start investing in 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 our local communities, in our actual public employed nurses. That's what we really need. And and this, I think, the Auditor General will expose really what the true cost of allowing these travel nurses and private companies to to become the crutch that the government is is leaning on because they failed to address the public health care system. I appreciate the time, Sonny Leela. Thank you. Yeah, and thank you very much. Patty. My pleasure. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Leal Evans is the NDP member for <clears throat> the Torngat Mountains. Uh, I'm, no one's disputing that this story and the numbers attached to it is a big issue. Of course it is. But it does beg the question as to how we can even pump the brakes on it now. Like, how does that even work? So with all that money being spent, and however many travel nurses are actually working in the system, I don't know. That would be a helpful number to have. But people aren't wrong when they say that 36 or $35.6 million, had it been spent on improving the lot in life and or the rate of pay for healthcare professionals, including registered nurses and nurse practitioners there, we maybe wouldn't have found ourselves in this spot. But now we're at the point where it becomes an extremely difficult, a monumental task to address it in reasonable and manageable fashion because... You know, if it was a million dollars annually prior to the pandemic and in a five-month snapshot of last year, over 35 and a half million, then, boy, putting that toothpaste back in the tube is going to be a trick. Let's take a break. When we come back, Anita, Anita is in the queue to talk about trespassing. George wants to talk about salmon fishery and then lots of time for you. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Anita, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Thank you very much for taking my call. Um, uh, I'm one of the owners of Windy Heights Farm up in Portugal Cove. And I'm calling with regards to an ongoing problem that we're having uh, with the use of ATVs and snowmobilers and the, dis- the destruction that they're causing to, to our land and, and wetlands and conservation areas. And um, I really needed to call in because I think that we're in a position where people have to start being aware that, that 
there is no right of ways to farm fields where we're having real problems where locals are claiming they have the right to trespass because they feel it's a historic trail. And Windy Heights Farm was always a farm and Access Road was always private property. And those people that are driving around in quads and dirt bikes and skidoos, they were always trespassing, tearing up the farm. And now they're causing grief to our animals. So when we first purchased a farm five years ago, there were no animals, no saw, only sod and hay. And uh, the owners didn't have too much trouble because they didn't have those animals. And they uh, used to allow some use. And so we've got a long history of individuals using farm fields because it's great to go on a skidoo on a farm field. I, I understand that, but they don't understand they're damaging the the crops. They're they're compacting the soil and they're penetrating the 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 ice so that nothing grows there until July, August. So we're really put behind the eight ball when this happens. So we've been trying to educate for the past five and a half years, and we've been telling them that we're intending to get livestock. And now this year, this year, we're at a point where we have a significant number of uh, livestock, and they're being severely impacted. And we've had three sows, which are mama pigs. They've given birth over the past week. And all three of the sows have trampled at least one baby piglet because they've been pacing back and forth in their pens when the skidoos are racing past. And and we have to run to the sows. And after the skidoos have been racing around, and we try to calm them down, but the damage is already done. The piglets get crushed. So on top of that, we have electrified fence. We have a bull cow. We have cattle. The, the electric fence has been knocked down three times. One one time, a person almost got beheaded. We don't know how the heck he, because the electric fence was right at the point where it would have hit his neck. We don't know how he didn't, um, because it was too far away to see. But three times we've had to break, uh, uh, we've had to fix the fence. We've put up no trespassing signs for the whole almost six years that we've been here. We've replaced gates. We've put up wooden posts. They've been cut down with chainsaws. We've had uh, big hay bales that we've put in trailways. They've been pushed over. We've done it all. But the losing of these animals, it's, 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 it's heartbreaking. So we need people to understand. We understand that the majority of... Um, Newfoundland farms are crown leased, but they are leased. So we pay the government $4 per hectare, but they don't understand that when you've purchased an existing farm, you still pay fair market value. We have 400 acres here. That's a lot of land. We understand that. We paid a million dollars for this property. We pay $10,000 a month for the mortgage for this property. If we can't get a full crop and we can't raise our animals safely, you're you're jeopardizing our livelihood and you're killing our animals. And it's heartbreaking. So we want people to stop. We want people to realize it's private property. They don't have the right to get over it. 
they think that they're accessing trails. They're not accessing trails. They're cutting trails to get to the fields, to rip through the fields, to do wheelies, to leave behind beer bottles, beer cans, wine bottles, garbage. And it's not the kids. The majority of the people are adults that bring their youngsters on the back of the skidoos. It's mature individuals that are are middle-aged. It's well in their 30s, in their 20s. There's only one time recently that we had a group of teenagers, and we only know that because we heard their voices as they were ripping by in the middle of the night. And they're coming from the neighboring communities like Torbay, and they're coming from Portugal Cove, and they need to stop. But a big problem is the province doesn't have any established trails for skidoers on the Avalon. The municipalities, they don't have any need to be forced into getting these trailways organized. On the mainland, there are organized trails. On on the island, off the Avalon, there are organized trails. Why can't we get a registered, organized trailway get all these these skidoos registered, have these trails groomed and maintained so that there's a legal place for these people to safely run their vehicles. I'm not saying that they shouldn't, but I'm saying they shouldn't on our land. Absolutely, as you describe, whether it be the damage and dead animals, it's just unbelievable. So have you encountered any of these people who are doing the damage, and what kind of reaction or interaction was that? So we've been trying for five years to just talk to people, and we've we've written letters to town, and and the police are very helpful to come up there, and they'll do extra patrols, but they can't go down into the field. So we've been doing this for five years. This year we started public shaming, which we really didn't want to get into, but it actually seems to be having a positive impact because people are actually starting to engage and realize that, oh wow, we're actually doing some damage, right? They, so we have, and we've been taking pictures, we've been putting it up on our Facebook page. People are actually starting to know now that we're coming and they'll actually put their, they don't have their helmet on, they'll put their helmet on as we come up to them. And we have a drone and you'll see them racing away. We've had up to 29 skidoos at one time in our fields. Take a group picture, raising their their cans of beer, right? And then posting that on Facebook. Now that wasn't this year, but that was about three, four years ago. But that's, that's what's happened on these fields. How do they expect us to get any kind of crop off those fields when, when it's so penetrated down that it's so compacted and the frost is so beat in there, nothing grows, right? And then they say, oh, food sustainability, but they don't want to, they don't want to change anything on their end because heaven forbid it would, would interfere with their peaceful enjoyment of their skidoo, right? 
Yeah, well, peaceful enjoyment of their skidoo should not come with the obliteration of anyone's leased crown land property and or their animals that they tend to. So folks just have to be reasonable and respectful. If they know they're creating a problem and there's a way to skirt around your property and to not create the damage that they've done, and I'm sure that is absolutely available to them, as opposed to what sounds like a shortcut versus taking maybe a bit of a longer, uh, not quite a direct yeah. route. So, you know, I never really know why so many people are so willing to be the nuisance that they are. Yeah, yeah. See, we have a long history of of farmers' fields being free-for-alls, and that's part of the problem. But a real part of the problem is the lack of ownership of government bodies taking the control of this and realizing that it is a problem because they've just they've just shoved it to the lowest uh, uh, level which is the the landowner and as as an individual person we have no power but it's really their fault because they're allowing uh, skidoos on the roadways, yet there are no legal trailways. So the rules say that you're allowed to go along the roadside for one kilometer to a, an approved trail. So where is there an approved trail on the Avalon? There is none. So why are there any skidoos on any of the roads anywhere on the Avalon? It's not allowed. Yeah, there's some backcountry stuff, like, you know, following the transmission lines along the Trans-Canada Highway, which is a pretty desolate spot where you're not interfering with yep. anything or anybody. But yep. people, it's easy enough to pick out uh, a reasonable place to get on your quad or yep. get on your skidoo as opposed to do what they're doing in your area. And I'm sorry to hear it. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much for taking my call. And, and you know, I... I I understand and I feel for the people who are trying to enjoy their their skidoos. I, I enjoy skidoos also, but we understand that we need to stay on our own trailways. We never go across our own fields, and, and we're the owners of the fields, right? But people, if they wanted to create some type of group where they got an organized uh, uh, trail system together and they maintained that, that can work. And we could work with people to give them access to certain areas where they can get from one trail to another without beating the crap out of our fields and without going anywhere near our animals because, heaven forbid, there is now one steer and one bull and they are both well over a thousand pounds so i i i really i really want people to realize that they keep breaking down that fence that bull is going to have enough of it and and then they're going to see how fast they're going to have to go with that skidoo hopefully it doesn't come to that anita i appreciate your time hopefully things change for the better thank you you're welcome all right all right bye-bye very much take care bye-bye that's terrible stuff uh last break of the morning george you're next to talk about the salmon fishery took away Welcome back to the show. Press the wrong button. Uh, line number three. George, you're on the air. Uh, I like to call it salmon. Uh, they keep trying to uh, open the stocks ones back up, but the stock is not going to come back up when they seen salmon in other parts of the world and they're the same salmon, Atlantic salmon. 
Yeah. Why is anybody actively trying to reopen a commercial salmon fishery? Because the numbers simply aren't there. Whether we talk about returns no, to the rivers or anyway. Yeah, go ahead. But even uh, Parks Canada, you're the first one to come up with Park Pass, you didn't need it. But now you got a Park Pass and the trout. And, uh, instead of cutting out trout, and when the salmon uh, season is on, they cut it out. They won't let you go trout. And like now, they got all the brook shut down because uh, they're waiting for salmon stock built fill back up. Can somebody let them realize? that salmon stock's never going to come back. Well, I don't know if it's ever going to come back or, or not. You know, some uh, rivers are still relatively strong. Labrador river, rivers that they count, which I think they're four. The returns are obviously quite strong. But some uh, rivers here, you know, say, for instance, the Con River, historical returns years ago were very, very strong, and now they're down to a pittance. So obviously the stock is in absolute trouble. And there's some science being done about exactly what is happening to the salmon when they move off into the, cold, uh, off into the ocean and why they don't return. There's actually a news story I heard not long ago where this scientist was talking about uh, they have tagged some of these fish to find out, and they're, they're able to figure out whether or not it was eaten by a whale or a seal or something like that, or just died for other causes or reasons, disease and otherwise. So, yeah, the salmon stock is in desperate shape, obviously. Well, it is there in Newfoundland, but it's not in other places. In other places, they're seeing salmon catching the biggest kind right in the rivers. That's why the salmon stock is never going to come back. Okay, it's certainly and contributing factor. The codfish factors. is the same thing. The codfish is the same thing. In certain spots, they sit their traps, and they, they don't sit any other kind of traps, only crab traps. They catch this codfish out of them, thousands and thousands of pounds. And there you're not allowed to catch no codfish. Yeah. Like the government, the, the government got different rules, different governments, different rules. It's all the same fish. It should be the same rule on this side of the island or on the other side of the country, wherever. Well, the federal government uh, handles the west coast of the country fishery vastly different. And plus, the structure of the fishery, in yeah. all fairness, in the, off the coast of BC is much different than how we operate here in this province. And then with the salmon, like, there is a commercial stock, uh, a commercial harvest of salmon off St. Pierre. It's fairly modest, but there is one. And the migratory route is very clear. There's a direct relationship between North Atlantic salmon that would make their appearance here in our waters and in Greenland. And the Atlantic yeah. Salmon Federation, they signed, I think it was a 12-year agreement with the, I don't think it's with Greenland, I think it's with the union representing the harvesters in Greenland, 20-ton annual target. And they haven't abided by their uh, their side of the bargain. So that's not helping either. No, and what are, like I said, they're saying them in the rivers, the biggest kind of salmon, biggest ones you've ever seen. They're saying them, this okay. kind of salmon that the government is still waiting for to come back to Newfoundland. That's never going to make it here. They haven't got sense enough to realize it yet, I guess. Yeah, well, I don't think anyone's really thinking that there's going to be that kind of commercial harvest of salmon any time in the near future, if ever. Uh, George, no, appreciate I don't, I don't care about the I don't care about the commercial harvests. Just that, the, like, when the they're expecting the salmon come back and stock up the brooks and parks Canada because shuts down the trouting because they want salmon stock to build back up. All they're doing is taking rates away from people because they're not leaving a lot of trouting because salmon stock's not up. Well, salmon stocks have anything to do with trouting. Uh, right now, you're not allowed to go trouting because salmon stocks are down. Okay. But when the salmon season is open, you're allowed to catch and release. Did that have anything good to do with salmon? No, they die as close to the river, but people haven't got no sense to realize it yet. Yeah, the mortality rate is a real thing. I appreciate the time this morning, George. Thanks for the call.
All right, thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Bye bye. All right, uh, where do you want me to go here, Dave? Let us go to line number two. Say good morning to Brenda O'Rourke, the owner of the Woodstock Restaurant. Good morning, Brenda. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How's it going? Or Brendan. Pardon me. Brendan, yes. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, yeah, I was just giving you guys a call today. Um, looking to do uh, to just start a little conversation. So we're bringing back the buffet here, which was a bit of an infamous part of Woodstock uh, historically. Um, you know, obviously the pandemic put an end to that, but now that we're bringing it back, I figured it'd be a good opportunity to open a little conversation um, because we're looking to pair with uh, some community groups. You know, food waste is obviously something that um, you know, would be a big concern for a lot of guests coming to the buffet, but um, that's why we want to try and get ahead of it. You know, and we're looking to uh, see if perhaps any of your listeners uh, had had any uh, knowledge of the groups that might exist out this way in CBS and Paradise, or, uh, you know, just kind of have a conversation about the buffet. Well, it's certainly something that I would associate with going to the Woodstock, especially for a brunch on a Sunday. Yes. And I mean, as a child, when we, as a family, would go to the Woodstock, it was in the middle of nowhere. It was a real adventure to go to the Woodstock and the live piano, and it was kind of a, always a really great experience. So what kind of conversation are you trying to ignite here, Brendan, or you simply want people to be aware of the fact that it's coming back? Well, I mean, that was the original intention for the call. Now, um, you know, to to let people know, because like you said, I mean, it, you know, the Sunday Buffet and Woodstock are, are intrinsically linked for a lot of people. Um, you know, the fond memories that people have with the family traditions, whether it's on the birthdays or just um, just coming out on a Sunday, you know, it's uh, you know it's something that we want to make sure that people are are knowing about, and um, you know we're just uh, you know looking to start a bit of a conversation around the buffet, and you know perhaps you know why it took so long to come back, or if anybody had any questions, that kind of thing, you know. Well, if they'd like to uh, elaborate on the show, we can have that. I wouldn't mind having a conversation around the buffet physically. Sure. Yeah. I appreciate the time. Good luck with it, Brendan. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Yeah. Going to the Bella Vista when we were kids, it was an absolute massive adventure. Uh, okay. Let's go to line number four. James, you're on the air. Just a quick comment on the snow current, Patty. Okay. Uh, driving up Torbay Road yesterday and uh, see a, a sidewalk blower going up, doing a wonderful job, nice clean job. Just down the road from him comes a snowplow with the wind plow, wind blade down. <laughs> Ruined his job altogether. So I think part of our job, a problem with the snow clearing, sidewalks, everything else, is lack of coordination or, or because they can they got GPS on all these machines. All they got to do is have somebody monitoring it and so that they don't destroy the work of the guy doing the, the sidewalk. Yeah, you have to choreography, uh, put the choreography in place just like a dance, right? Because if you go in the inappropriate order, then, of course, you're just backfilling work that's already been done. And so we got to do it twice. I mean, I see yeah. that happening. And then you'll add into it when the snow is getting cleared and some of it, whether it be the private or public operator, just ends up blocking up a sidewalk or cutting, putting a snowbank in a sidewalk. We've just, you know... I know people are in a rush and trying to do what they can because they know there's been a lot of snow, but, but you can't. Must have supervisors be able to do to watch that sort of stuff and coordinate that uh, a snowplow with a wing down don't follow a, a, a sidewalk blower. I get it. Okay, buddy. I appreciate the time, James. Bye. Take care. Bye bye. 
yeah, it's got to be carefully choreographed. Of course it does. You know, you see some of those videos going around with other major cities in the country about how they do indeed approach it and just how quickly they get the blowers out, you know, because that's one thing now, because here's where we are, is finding a place to put the snow. Whether it be because of a plow and or shoveling your own driveway. But anyway, good show to kick off the week. Big thanks to all hands who support the program. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning. Right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.